WAPG Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 304. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at the APG Headquarters building in Roswell, Georgia. In today's episode, we have a couple of uh, incidents with uh, Bin Liner, some UFO action, another almost landing on a taxiway incident. And more news, your feedback, and the latest Plain Tales installment, Christmas Outtakes. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 304 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we talk about aviation, and I'm a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier based in Atlanta, Georgia, and joining us from the Carolinas, a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hello, Captain Jeff. So great to be back with you guys. Um, episode 304. Looking forward to it. It's going to be a great show. It is. And also joining us from his sprawling country estate southwest of London, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff, and uh, hi, Steph, and I know we'll be saying hello to Dana in a second. Great to be back on the show. Thank you very much indeed. I'm going to have a bit of a dark brown voice tonight. I'm breeding germs uh, by the million as I speak, so I hope none of our listeners catch my cold. I hope not. You know, the connectivity is good, but I don't think it's quite that good yet. Oh, these viruses get everywhere. All right, that's what they say. And also joining us... From Daytona Beach, Florida, barbecue master, bourbon connoisseur, motorcycle riding pilot for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Well, hello, everybody. Great to be back once again. We always say it's always going to be a great show. I'd wondered what people would react or how they would react if we said it's going to be it's a It's going to be a lousy show. show. <laughs> lousy show. Don't even bother listening. It's terrible. That's actually yeah, probably uh... closer to the truth, but... Uh... You know. No, come on. <laughs> we love being here. It's it's another fun evening, or wherever you are, maybe morning, afternoon. But great to be back to see Dr. Steph, of course, uh, El Sico Nico, and uh, Captain Jeff. Great to be here. Great. And uh, so what brings you to the lovely uh, borough of uh, Daytona Beach, Florida? A reroute. I was supposed to be in the Carolinas, very close to Dr. Steph, over there in Charleston, South Carolina, but the... Wonderful weather there in uh, Dallas this morning was uh, uh, a bit frightful, as they would say this time of the year. Uh, heavy thunderstorms, heavy rain, and uh, about an hour, extra hour and a half to get off the ground today. 
Air traffic control did the best that they could, but we were just surrounded by heavy, heavy, uh, heavy cells. So uh, we got uh, airborne and uh, kind of figured once we got airborne, running as late as we were, we only had a 47-minute turn in Atlanta that we would probably get rerouted. And, you know, if I have to get rerouted, might as well be to Daytona. Yeah. And then, you know, as soon as we land here in Daytona, I got a phone, Captain got a phone call. A little early Christmas gift. We're being pulled off the trip tomorrow for training. Oh. Because, uh, yeah, they need to uh, go ahead and, and uh, actually, management pilots, I think, have to come out and do a little flying. So they wanted a very nice uh, um, Panama City overnight. So it's been removed. So I get to finish tomorrow when I get back from Dallas. Wow. So both of you. early. Both of you are going to be uh Both of us removed? have been removed. Wow. Yep. Actually, Very nice. Schedule so yet, tell so. people that aren't familiar, um, at least with our company, Acme Airlines, which is a, a fictional airline, um, they if they do something like that, you get paid as if you actually flew that trip, right? Yes, it, you get full uh, pay and credit for the trip, except for one thing. We flew an extra hour today. So if we had flown the complete trip, then we would have made an extra hour and four minutes of pay. Uh, as compared to what we were originally scheduled for. But if they're going to go ahead and pay me for four legs that I don't actually have to fly. Yeah, that's probably And the then better. make it a whole. And, and Thursday, Thursday was going to be a bit, of a, a bit of a struggle for me. I was going to fly three legs after getting up at four in the morning to be at the airport at, at uh, 5 a.m. Um, and I was then going to have to turn around, drive home, go get my wife, and repack all my bags, and turn around and get back to the airport for a 7 o'clock flight uh, on Thursday to go ahead and get home for Christmas, it made it a whole lot nicer uh, having the trip removed from my schedule. So excited about that. Uh, unusual occurrence. I haven't had that happen to me but one other time in my uh, time at Acme, uh, but it's the time it couldn't be any better. So I'm in a chipper mood, to say the least. Excellent. And uh, how was how the rib cage? Is that uh, feeling any better? Nope. No, no better. Uh, it's actually gotten worse, and that's kind of concerning me. Uh-oh. But it's not, it's not as bad as the uh, ear issue Julius had. She's been to two doctors in two days. They finally figured out what it was. An ear issue? Ear issues, yeah. Her ear was all swollen, all oh, red. No. She, it was, she couldn't even lay on her side of the head, you know, it, and it was pounding. They gave her antibiotics, so... It was uh, it was a bit trying for her for the last several days, and it only turns out that she went to the ENT specialist today to find out that she has a pimple in her ear. ear oh, canal. okay. So it's not going to be something that's going to keep her from flying then. No, okay. but her ear was pretty much swollen shut. So oh, it's. I was going to say on the you know external like that, it's more like a otitis. Uh, externa basically but yeah that makes yeah, sense it, oh, it yeah, was yeah. funny because I, I said yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly what i thought it was but tr- tr- well tr- it's different tr- than tr- an inner ear you know or a middle ear infection so it's not gonna give you some of those well, same the ironic thing was two, day, two days ago i said i looked at it when she asked me when she asked me to look at it for her and i was putting airdrops because i had you know an ear infection from diving a long time ago um and so i, I looked at it i said honey i, I have a funny feeling you have a pimple she says, it can't be all the way around my ear. I said, well, okay, but I think it's a pimple. So <laughs> it took two doctors, untold mutton. I can't even begin to <laughs> figure out how much that's going to cost. Dr. Nana. For, <laughs> for right. her to go and have a pimple popped <laughs> at the ENT. So, <laughs> wow. It's all good. 
and okay. it's probably going to kill me for talking about this on air. Oh, well, don't tell her. I'm sure she I doesn't won't. listen, so we're good. All right. Uh, um, enough about me. Yeah, very good. Well, um, great that you could make it, and and so far the uh, connection is working out well, uh, Dana. So let's uh, you know keep our fingers crossed. Um, Stephanie, I'm going to go with you because it seems like of all of us, you're the uh, most physically fit uh, and healthy at this point, unless there's something going on with you that you haven't told us about. No, physically fit and healthy is a good way to describe how I feel. Actually, um, you know, just recapping the weekend on Saturday, I went out to the U.S. Whitewater Center, which is here in Charlotte. It's a Olympic training facility for um, kind of some whitewater rapids type stuff, kayaking and, and things like that. But they also have a big trail system. So they do all these different trail races throughout the year. And they did a little 5K trail race during the middle of the day this past Saturday and went out with a couple friends, ran that, managed to take third place in my age group. So it was pretty excited about that. It was a really nice day for it. Uh, and good then, job, Steph. Thank you. I mean, not any, it wasn't any huge race or anything like that, but it was yeah, still, still. Wow. It was still fun. Yeah. Still so, a nice accomplishment. And I'm, I'm not much of a trail runner, so it was, it was, that's always a good achievement there when I'm not used to doing that type of stuff, hills, and I don't have shoes that are specific for it or anything. Seems so. like there would be much more opportunity to twist a turn an ankle, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. And I, actually, there was a guy that fell on the trail right in front of me, just, mm. you know, put his toes underneath a tree branch and went right down. I almost crashed right on top of him, oh, actually. Um, they actually do a similar run that I used to do a bunch um, in November, and they do it at night. So you have to take out your headlamp or a flashlight and you could just hear people like crashing all over the place on that trail run so but it's, it's fun it's, they do a good job organizing all of that so thanks to the u.s national whitewater center for for that fun day and then on sunday um i was gonna go out and do um just some instrument stuff some approaches and holds and you know tracking fixes and things like that but the plane i wanted to do that in was not available. So I actually just ended up renting a 172 and went out for a little evening flight near uh, just before sunset. Took it over to Carthage, which is, um, they have a really nice barbecue restaurant out there called the Pick and Pig. Um, clearly I was out there after they were closed for the day, but I hadn't been out there before and their runway is a little on the small side and surrounded by trees. It's like 25, just over 2,500 feet long and 36 feet wide. So when Took a look at that, and it's it's not any big deal getting in or out of there in a 172. So I'll have to go back and have some barbecue. I guess it could be a challenge if you uh, had a good crosswind, though, right? Uh, yes, it, it could be. And if it was a windy, gusty day, I don't think I'd like the uh, wind coming through those trees there, on, especially coming from the south on 3-1 as opposed to 1-3. So, er. I'm upset with you. You're upset with me? There's an airport right by my house, and I have fantastic barbecue. <gasps> okay. Just saying. It's a little further away. So this one was 60 <laughs> nautical miles, <laughs> just over 60 nautical miles, and it was before sunset. So How can you say yeah. good barbecue when, you, you know, when you've had my- I haven't- Oh, yes. I- so, I mean, short notice, we could show up at your house, and you'd be able to service <laughs> good barbecue? Exactly. Of course. Well, what? I didn't even get I didn't even get barbecue this time around because I went after they were closed. So oh. I'm going to go back. Yeah. It was just nice to get out and go flying because I hadn't been for a little while. Even more reasons to show up at my house. I'm never closed. Okay. <laughs> I'm only kidding. Man spread. Okay. Um, I don't know why that just came to mind, but uh, it did. And I'm sorry for it. Um, Captain Nick, I think that yeah. uh, you're a little bit under the weather. Yes. 
Uh, yeah, I sorry. I'm just trying to get rid of that uh, image that popped into my mind of man spread. <laughs> it you. sounds like something you put in a sandwich, <laughs> and I'm thinking I don't really want any of that. But um, so, uh, to our lovely listeners, you can please take that out of your mind as well. Do I need to tell you what man spread is? <laughs> no, no, it's <laughs> not that. It's actually uh, guys uh, sitting down, like in the subway or uh, whatever, in a public space, and just spreading their legs apart oh, and taking up okay. more space than they they should, and it's kind of like gotcha. a a male privilege kind of thing, apparently. Right. Okay. Ah, right. In that case, is that I'll, right, Steph? Yep. Do I get that right? That that is correct, but okay. I tend just to. I don't know. Never mind. I'm not going to go there. Okay. Yeah. This, we're not going to get into politics or religion. <laughs> no, no, on this no, show. no, 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 <laughs> Exactly. We'll just, right. we'll just leave that with the definition of what it is and yeah. moving swiftly. On. There you go. Moving swiftly. Well, on actually, there. I do have man spread um, in my belly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Sorry, Nick. Continue. <laughs> <please>. <laughs> well, there we go. <laughs> well, as you can hear, I'm in the, in the peak of health. I, uh, Went off uh, to fly my line check last trip, which was going to be to Barbados and back. Not in the ideal trip. I was going to leave from Heathrow and uh, land back at Gatwick, which was going to be a bit of a pain because my car was going to be at Heathrow, which is good, like 20, 30 miles away. So I would then have to jump on a bus and go back, find my car and go home, which is never great after an all-night flight. So um, anyway, I prepped myself for this uh, line check, uh, did a bit of study, uh, drove up to the airport and I just got on the bus to take us from our crew car park to Terminal 3 and my little phone rang and it was crewing saying, uh, oh, terribly sorry, Nick, uh, there's been a an aircraft change. Uh, another Boeing has gone down. Uh, so we've substituted uh, one of our flights with an Airbus and we're now short of a crew to fly it because we're expecting it to be a Boeing. Um, and uh, it's a flight out of Gatwick. And I went, oh, well, that's not a lot of use to me. I'm at Heathrow. And they said, well, could, if you've got any objection to getting in your car and driving to Gatwick and operating the flight for us, just one way, uh, and then you'll passenger home after a night, and you'll end up back at Gatwick, which was kind of useful because that's where my car would be. So I went, okay, but what about my line check? Oh, don't worry about that. We'll fix your line check on another day, which is Kind of amusing because, um, uh, you know, I'm uh, going to be running out at the end of the month and that's probably going to be my uh, last trip because I'm now sick. So I'm going to start the new year unable to fly until they find the line check. Anyway, to top it all, uh, flew out with a lovely first officer uh, out of Gatwick, landed at Barbados, and by the time we landed, I was saying this scratchy throat is uh, proving to be really nasty on coughing and sneezing now and that I built over the last few days into a full-blown cold and um, I managed to fly home but uh, on the way home um, my ears were a nightmare to uh, clear so uh, I was really suffering so I'm very glad I didn't actually have to operate home because that can be extremely distracting when you're uh, trying to fly in the aircraft and you can't clear your ears I was going deaf in one side because uh um, I couldn't get any uh, air through my eustachian tube to equalize the pressure in my uh, ears. And I'm usually pretty good at that after, uh, you know, 40 years of professional flying. And I've never really had a problem equalizing pressure. So I've obviously well gunked up, sneezing and coughing and feeling uh, pretty awful. So I, I I'm doubt I'll very much be, I very much doubt I'll be fit for my next trip. But uh, there you go. So I'm now sitting at home kind of waiting for Christmas to come around. Um, 
And uh, while I've been talking, uh, a number of messages have uh, flicked up on the screen um, suggesting that uh, Jeff's having a little bit of audio problem. Yes. So uh, he says his audio is uh, bleep bleeped up. Yes, his audio is bleeped up. So uh, I'm not quite sure. Well, wait, he's just rejoining us now. So we'll find out uh, what he wants to do about that. Anyway, that's my little story. Yes, mate. That sounds like a um, quite an adventure, Nick. Um, speaking of adventures, did you all hear about the uh, meltdown at the Atlanta International Airport just a few days ago? Yeah, I heard the hamster stopped running around its wheel and all the power went out. Is that right? Um, yeah, well, all the power went out. I'm not sure it had anything to do with a hamster, but it wouldn't surprise me if it did. I think the hamster caught on fire. Yeah, <laughs> and the ashes left of the hamster at this point. So apparently there was a major um, uh, access or, or supply line to uh, the airport terminals and uh like the train system and most of everything except for the uh, I'm not even sure if it was did it affect the air traffic control tower uh, Dana and then they just got on their emergency generators and, and everything got back to normal or what yeah apparently uh, it was just the terminals and uh, everything associated with it uh, the tower was uh, on emergency power as you mentioned and I would think uh, most people would say well at least you know the ATC terminal had power and everything should be all hunky-dory, right? Well, no. Apparently, there are a lot of things that uh, require electricity in the terminals that uh, directly impact the operation of uh, the operation, like, you know, jet moving the jetways to the aircraft and other things. Of course, you know, uh, the computer systems are all down and, and the um, printers and all the other things that we rely upon. Oh, all the conveyor belts for bags and uh, all the escalators and elevators. Um, oh, yeah. People were telling me about stories about having to carry people in wheelchairs uh, down these escalators that weren't working. So there were basically like three, four store. I don't know if you've ever been to Atlanta International, but the escalators are not your typical escalator. They're like very, very long, tall, you know, three, four story high escalator and systems. How about the train between the yeah, no trains. terminals? Yeah. People get stuck on the train? I don't know. I didn't hear anything about that. Didn't hear about that at all either. But uh, somebody was asking me about that. And I said that they do have uh, those little, you know, walkways or catwalks or whatever on the. Uh, uh -huh. No, I'm sure they were able to get them out. But yeah. Elevators. Just, People are stuck in elevators. Uh what a mess. And not only that, they, you know, of course, all the security screen equipment went down. You know, if you wanted a picture of what Armageddon would look like if we lost power in, in anywhere, that was pretty much it. So you were not there, Dana, right? No, I was not. But, you know, we were talking to Tom. Remember, he was giving us some mm -hmm. information. And I've talked to a couple of my friends. Uh, oh, one that you know. Um, his name is uh, Captain Donato. Mm -hmm. uh, he was giving, giving me information because he was there. Uh, he was, of course, wanting to know how the New England Patriots and Steelers game was going because he's a Steelers fan. I didn't dare tell him because he couldn't watch TV uh, stuck in the terminal. Well, but that was, was a good game, a by the way. I know we're not going to really go into depth on that. No, we're not. That was a nail-biter for um, for both sides. And That's uh, why I have no nails left. <laughs> yeah. It was terrible. Oh, my God. So, anyways, uh, yeah, so, you know, I've heard people were stuck in elevators, uh, of course, the train system. Even yesterday when I was... What's yesterday? Monday, yeah. 
uh, people were walking through the tunnels because the train system was still down as of yesterday. Um, and I saw our uh, makeshift uh, bag cart islands with all of people's bags um, stacked up because, you know, they didn't have any electricity and, and all the bags got stuck in the, in the uh, baggage system. So, you know, people's bags were spread all over the place because they didn't know where anybody went. And then, you know, oh, of course, go ahead. Yeah, worst of all, all the cell phones would have been gone down because there was no power to charge your phone and all right. the cell masks would have had no power. People wouldn't have been able to communicate. Ah. Oh. And then ah. I was reading something while this was going on. I was at home, thankfully, because I started my vacation on Sunday. Um that uh, the, uh, the the people weren't le- being let out of the airport because the cameras weren't working or something like that. I'm thinking, what? That doesn't make any sense to me. But apparently somebody was reporting, at least, that uh, they weren't allowing people to leave the terminals, um, you know, like the main terminal out, out the front of the airport. Um, not sure why. And that doesn't make any sense to me. But uh, anyway, it's it, needless to say, it was a huge mess. And uh, the, the backup line apparently didn't work because where the fire was in this underground facility it actually took out the transfer switch that transfers the power from the main line to the backup line so obviously uh, they're going to have to go back to the drawing board to to, you know ensure that if this ever happens again that there's a better way to reroute the power to the uh, airport good design yeah no put the not (laughs) redundant system right next to the primary system yeah yeah that doesn't sound like uh, a good idea, but anyway, so it was a mess. It's, yes, I was going to say it's kind of like what uh, Captain Al Haynes had to deal with going into Sioux City when one line took out the other line, took out the other line, mm-hmm. and had no controls. I mean, that's pretty much what they had was un- uncontrolled uh, failure there in Atlanta, and fortunately nobody got hurt. Yeah, at least that we know of. That's true. That's true. Yeah, that's the kind of the miracle in all of this, really, um, yeah, because the airplane stranded, um, you know, Dana and I fly an airplane where we have built in air stairs. So unless they're written up, you know, you can get the people out of the airplane via the uh, rear air stairs. Uh, the other airplanes, most of our fleet required that they get the, you know, the mobile air stairs to the airplanes uh, to um, to deboard the folks and put them on buses and such and get them into the terminal. Not that they were any better off in the terminal, but apparently I've, I've heard some pretty uh, crazy stories where people were on airplanes for more than seven hours, which uh, I'm so glad well, you know, that, that I wasn't there. That brings, up an, that brings up a very interesting point, Jeff. The tarmac? Oh, room? no, they're in battery. They're, 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 no, the, uh, the toilets <laughs> in, the, in the restrooms at the airport are all electronically operated, but I think they're all, fortunately, I think they're all battery. Oh, I've mean never the, seen any wires. Like the urinal things? Yeah, the commodes and the urinals. I mean, they're all electronically I bet, flushed. I think they have like a, an alternate system where you can hit the, hit a button and then they'll flush. But, I, you know, you're right. That may, may be a hardwired electrical kind of a system, not a battery system. Yeah, I think, I think even the push button, because it doesn't actually open a valve. It always, all it is is an electronic switch that you're pushing. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. I hope that Happy was mess. on battery. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> well, so... Um, and nobody could eat any food either. That, no food that, available. That occurred about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, and power was... Re- and that was Sunday, I believe. And power was restored at around midnight on Sunday night. So about 11 hours total of uh, complete 
power failure at the uh, airport. And uh, when you do that to the world's busiest airport, it, it's going to be a mess. Um, we had somebody send in something here for us uh, regarding the Atlanta pa- power failure. So let's take a listen. This is Miami Hick. Seems they had some trouble with the power over there at Hartsfield. I noticed a few things while I was there. Jotted them down for you. It was so dark at Hartsfield. How dark was it? It was so dark that the airport employees had to take the oil lamps and the candles out of the mad dogs so everybody could see. <laughs> it was so dark. Dr. Steph poked her own self with a needle. It was so dark. Nick couldn't even find one of the only two buttons inside of his Airbus. <laughs> but luckily, Captain Jeff and Miami Rick was there to save the day. Captain Jeff, his nice, bright, white mustache was so bright that it actually lit up the terminal so people could see. And Miami Rick was taking so many selfies that the flash from his camera also lit up the terminal so everybody could see and get around safely. So keep those, uh, keep the lights on. Till next time, I'm Hick. Over and out. Yeah, nice one, Hick. Yes. Good one. Always, always yes. good to have his commentary. <laughs> Absolutely. He missed, he missed the glare of the light bouncing off my forehead lighting up mm. the terminal. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I think he uh, assumed maybe you were wearing your usual, you know, fun uh, hats that have the hair. Yes. 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 All right. Um, I just want to know what you put on your mustache to make it glow like that, Jeff. I, I really can't tell you my secrets. All right. Okay. You weren't sniffing uranium fuel rods or something? No. No. No? Okay. So I was on a trip uh, a few days back. Uh, before I started my vacation on Sunday, got back on Saturday. So I went uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And while I was in Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, downtown at the Hyatt Regency, I met up with some APG community members and I recorded something. Now, the recording was in a underground tunnel. Uh, so there's a lot of reverberation. I did my best to remove as much as the reverberation as I could, but there's still some um, evident in this. But uh, let's take a listen. Just got back from uh, eating a great meal at, do you remember what the name of the place was? Cafe Herrera or something like that? Oh, there you go. (laughs) So how do you say uh, the place that I go to in Mexico sometimes? Querétaro. There you go. (laughs) An expert. That was Armando. And uh, so, well, here, I'll let, I'm going to, I'm going to hold or hand this to you and you can say who you are and, uh, and what we're doing. And my name is Landon. I'm the, I suppose, organizer of this meetup here in Dallas. I happened to look on this Captain Jeff's schedule yesterday, noticed he was going to be in town, sent him a message, and he happily agreed to a meetup, and we had some other people show up. I guess all I have to say is keep a look on the schedule, organize a meetup if he's coming to town, because it's a lot of fun. Yeah, well, anything uh, interesting happening in your flying life anytime soon, Landon? Uh, yeah, I have my private pilot check ride six days from now as I'm recording this. So probably by the time this makes it onto the show, I will either be a private pilot or not a private pilot. <laughs> <laughs> or an Uber driver. So <laughs> we'll see how that goes. And I guess I'll write in some feedback to let Jeff know how I did. Absolutely. 
Hello, this is Armando, formerly a, an El Paso, Texas resident, which where I had the pro pleasure of meeting Captain Jeff for the first time and having a nice dinner. Now I live here in Dallas with my family. And uh, again, I saw on Twitter about the the meetup today and I immediately, you know, tweeted to Captain Jeff and came out and met uh, these wonderful guys and saw Captain Jeff again, which is always a pleasure. And just not in the aviation world professionally or personally, but still a fan and just wanted to uh, say hi again and meet new people. Hello, my name is Yvonne Cruz. Uh, been listening to the podcast for probably about three or four years or so. Live here in Dallas. Uh, came out here to see Captain Jeff side on Twitter at four in the morning. Woke up my wife, asked for permission, and came out. <laughs> and uh, yeah, she said, "Get out of my face." Um, and uh, I am here in Dallas. Recently moved here to Dallas uh, to go through uh, regional uh, first officer uh, training and doing that right now. Hopefully. Uh, here in about a month and a half or so, I'll be done and I'll be out on the line flying. But uh, really, I'm just appreciative that uh, Captain Jeff's out here and all these guys are out here. And we are, all had an opportunity to just uh, enjoy each other's company, enjoy some good food, and uh, look forward to more of these, hopefully in the future. Awesome. As, as I always say, you know what I'm going to say, that the best part of doing the show is not the recording and uh, talking about the news and answering people's feedback, although I enjoy that immensely. But the best part is, and I know that Captain Nick and Dr. Steph and Dana will agree, that when we get a chance to meet some of the community, that's what makes this really real and it it makes you appreciate what we're doing every week even though we're having a heck of a time uh doing it we're having a lot of fun that is doing it every week but uh meeting people and uh knowing how we have touched their lives is awesome and then hearing stories like landon's you know going for his private pilot license amando uh and learning about his life and you know following his career uh and uh uh, Yvonne uh, starting his career after a military career in the uh, commercial aviation world is just uh, it's just so cool to hear about all that and how we kind of have a, like I feel like there's a piece of it that uh, is is part of our story too uh, at the APG and uh, part of our community so anyway that's about it I'm going to keep blabbering on forever if I don't uh, hit the stop button soon so there you go we had a great time. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> that Captain Jeff. He just won't shut up. <laughs> that was an amazing place, uh, Jeff. It sounded like you were in a swimming bath or uh, <laughs> we were somewhere. In a sewer pipe. Yeah, like a, a sauna <laughs> uh, yes. or something. <laughs> sounded really weird. It really, uh, believe it or not, I used a, a plug-in called Deverberate, which actually you know reduced the uh, the, the reverberation quite a bit. <laughs> you should really hear the original. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty bad, pretty bad. But. Um, Anyway, uh, what a great time. Uh, as, as we were recording last week, Landon was with us in the chat room. He's here again with us. Uh, so, and, and tomorrow is his private pilot check ride. Woohoo! Go Landon. Yeah, you're going to do great. Yay. Yeah. yeah, good luck, man. Yeah, as Landon says, it was a long concrete tunnel. And uh, anyway, Landon, last week when we were recording the show, he noticed that I was going to be laying over in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth and I was going to be downtown uh, Dallas. 
And uh, he said, you know, let's get together. And then so I put out a, a tweet and said, hey, if anybody is in the area. And then, you know, Armando, uh, I, I knew that he wasn't living in, in El Paso anymore, but I, I didn't realize that he was in the uh, Dallas Fort Worth area now. He used to own his own IT company. Now he's a real estate agent in the uh, Dallas area. And so he uh, showed up and um, Yvonne also, uh, Yvonne Cruz, I believe he was in. Uh, when he first started sending us feedback, he was in Hawaii, and now he is uh, living in the Dallas area. And as he said here in the in the recording, uh, that he has started uh, with um, a regional airline and uh, the first officer program. So uh, it's just as I said, you know, I'm repeating myself, of course, that uh, it's just so rewarding and uh, just awesome to meet up with people and hear their stories about how their, you know, their journey is going and, or what they're doing with their flying and, uh, you know, Landon uh, just starting his, uh, career in flying, uh, private pilots certificate, um, check ride tomorrow. And then, uh, of course, Yvonne a little bit further along, um, starting with the regionals and it won't be long before I'm sure that he'll be with the, uh, with the majors. So very cool. We had some great Mexican food to boot. Anything else we should talk about before? Oh, um, just a quick reminder that uh, just two days from now, if you're watching this live, uh, Thursday, the what day is that? This What day is today? I have no idea. Um, Tuesday. Tuesday. Okay, I know, Tuesday. but what date? Like what? No. Today is the 19th. 19th. Okay, so the, so 21st, the 21st. Thank you. Thursday, the 21st at 1930 Zulu is the PTUK Christmas extravaganza. And many of uh, those of you, uh, those of us who are in aviation podcasting will be present for the big party online. So set your clocks, put a entry in your agenda and join us for the fun and frivolity on Thursday. Absolutely. And finally, got my schedule. Excellent. And finally, I guess yeah, it, it's time for us to talk about uh, the way that you can um, support the show in a financial way, which is called the Coffee Fund. So take it away, the Java Jive Singers. Johnny, how much more coffee? No, thanks. I love coffee, I love tea, I love the Java Java and it loves me. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. The coffee fund? What the heck? And who are these people singing the Java Jive? I'm not really sure who these people are, but... The reason why we are playing it on the show is because this is our coffee fund, which is the way that you can support the show financially. And uh, you can learn more about it by going over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. And there are a couple different ways, to, to be exact, that you can. Well, actually, there's more than that. You can send us a check to the uh, P.O. box listed on the uh, website. Or uh, if you see me out there in person, you can buy me a cup of coffee. But uh, the two most common ways to become part of the Coffee Fund Cadre are the Coffee Fund Classic Method and the uh, Patreon Method. And let's talk about the Coffee Fund Classic Method first. It's basically a PayPal donation page. And since the last episode, Chris Randall and Mazuz 
Karim, uh, both um, sent in their recurrent or recurring uh, donations. So thank you very much to the both of you uh, for your generous donations to the coffee fund. And the other way that seems to be the most popular way is a service called Patreon. Yeah, they've been in the uh, in the news lately, uh, but it turns out that their idea to uh, pass some of the costs of uh, processing fees and such to the uh, patrons, um, that failed in a miserable way, which is a good thing because uh, most of us content creators uh, weren't advised of this potential change, and I think most of us would have said, no, that's not a good idea. So they are they have not changed things. So if you're listening right now and you are a patron, don't worry. Nothing has changed. You're not going to be charged anymore. So uh, hopefully you'll stay with us and continue to be part of the Coffee Fund Cadre. Since the last episode, we have, uh, let's see, well, a couple people have left us, which is understandable. You know, but uh, we do have a new patron, David Coville, and Jazz B increased his contribution considerably by... A factor of four. So thank you very much, Jez, and everyone else who uh, contributes to the Coffee Fund. And again, information about the Coffee Fund and the Coffee Fund cadre can be found by heading over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. Thanks for your support. Stand by for news. Right. Let's uh, head over to the uh, news folder. And uh, what did I put in the first item there? I'm trying to find the. Um... It was the Westwind ah, AT42. Yeah. Kind of the downer um, in the news folder. An ATR42 uh, crashed shortly after takeoff. And uh, hang on here. Let me see if I can find that article. <sighs> Apparently, I shouldn't have been drinking my beer while the news stinger was playing. You looked like you were enjoying it. I was, actually. Thank I actually you. almost went to go get a beer while you were playing that, and then I decided I should stick around for the but, news. But, you know, but. a good podcast host would have been preparing for what he was going to say and what he was going to read shortly after the stinger ends, but no, not me. <laughs> what were you saying about this being a great no. show? <laughs> yes? Yeah. Nobody said you're a good podcast. No, that's true. Nobody has. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Accident. Uh, this is from the Aviation Herald. Uh, Westwind Aviation Aviance de Transport Regional ATR 42300. How did I do stuff with that? Not, eh. not too bad, huh? No? All right. Um, it's all right. Registration. Charlie Dash Golf Whiskey Echo Alpha performing flight 280 from Fond du Lac, uh, Saskatchewan to Stony Rapids, Saskatchewan. Canada, with 22 passengers and three crew, was in the initial, the initial climb out of Fond du Lac at about 1815 local when the aircraft lost height and impacted terrain about 600 meters past the runway at approximately, oh, at approximate position. Well, I'm not going to tell you the position. Sorry. You'll have to figure that one out yourself. By the way, this will be in the show notes. All occupants survived. There are a number of serious and minor injuries. The aircraft sustained substantial damage. Royal Canadian Mounted Police reported all occupants have been accounted for and have been taken to hospitals. 
And the TSB, the Canadian TSB, reported that the aircraft lost height, descended into trees and terrain, leaving a wreckage trail of 800 feet in length. The aircraft came to a rest in an upright position, steeply tilted to the right. The worst damage occurred to the left side of the airframe. The fuselage ruptured at seat row three. Westwind have taken all their ATRs out of service for the time being. The French BEA, ATR, Pratt & Whitney are participating in the investigation. So, And that's about all we have. I checked again um, to see if there was any update on this, and I guess it's still early in the investigation. Uh, the weather, by the way, wasn't really that bad. Nine, nine miles uh, visibility, 1,700 overcast, some light snow, uh, temperature minus 9, dew point minus 10. So, you know, typical Canadian lovely weather this time of year, but it wasn't like super low visibilities or anything. So, uh, and low, low ceilings. So I'm not sure they haven't said anything at all that I've read about engine failures or anything else. So I'm not really sure exactly what happened here. Do you, do you guys have heard anything? Have you heard anything? Nope. Just, just oh. what I've seen here. Okay. Anyway, nothing. it's an amazing survival story. Yeah. Considering everybody survived. The look the, yeah, the, the damage down to the fuselage was pretty extensive. The aircraft uh, split in half, uh, so obviously some injuries, but uh, remarkable that everyone got out alive. It really is. And a little bit later in the news folder here, the news sec- segment, we're going to talk about uh, kind of a a pretty major uh, thing that we're going to celebrate if we can get through the end of the year without any major crashes. Um, but uh, we'll talk about like that. 12 in, more days, right? Yeah. So, you know, knock on wood. You know, let's mm-hmm. go ahead and talk about it right now since we're talking about it. Um, let's see. I'm trying to find this article from airsafe.com. With less than two weeks to go in 2017, as Steph said, about 12 days, the world's airlines are about to reach a milestone that has not happened in over 50 years. In every year since 1960, there has been at least one passenger fatality due to an accident, sabotage, hijacking or military action involving a jet airliner so far in 2017 that number zero in fact the last time a large jet airliner event led to passenger fatalities was in november 2016 when a chartered jet crash crashed in colombia killed killing most of the members of the brazilian chapancoense <laughs> close enough chapancoense okay. i think yeah football club uh, airsafe.com tracks a number of events and issues related to airline safety and security with a particular emphasis in passenger deaths on large jet airliners and certain models of turboprop driven aircraft that both have a capacity to carry 10 or more passengers and that have been certified to fly in the United States. These categories of flights are designed to the highest standards set by the world's most influential civil aviation authorities and also operate under the most demanding regulations in the U.S., Canada, Western Europe, Australia, and elsewhere. So that's quite a milestone, I'd say, um, that uh, we're about to make it through the year, hopefully, uh, with no fatalities. And that's just really phenomenal safety record. Well, it is, and particularly since uh, the amount of air travel has been steadily increasing over the years. So even more people now are flying than ever before, and uh, to be able to do so in such safe conditions is testament to the efforts we all make to uh, keep things uh, right way up. You know, you're, you make a very good point. I think that you can say that 100% is because of the uh, incredible quality of the aviators out there flying these things. 
Absolutely, yeah. And all our support yeah. personnel, the engineers yeah. and... Uh, Maintenance. And, yeah, you know. exactly right. Oh, Manufacturers. Yeah. Jeff, just the Jeff was just trying to pat himself <laughs> on the back there. <laughs> it's us. Yeah, it's right. all the pilots. It's all the it's pilots. It's just us. Yeah, pay us more. We're doing everything. <laughs> No, you're right. right. It's everybody involved in this uh, whole thing. Uh, manufacturers and maintainers and uh, all the folks that, uh, you know, make it and make a and huge traffickers and uh, yep. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Uh, let's see. The next thing I have here. This is an interesting one. I think uh, it involved a uh, Captain Nick's favorite airplane, the Boeing 787 uh, 900 model was flying um, Flight 784, Air China. Flight 784 from Auckland, New Zealand, to Beijing, China. Was en route at flight level 340 over the Pacific Ocean, about 500 nautical miles north of Auckland, when the left-hand engine, a Trent 1000 made by Rolls-Royce, developed a problem causing the entire left-hand side of the aircraft to lose electrical power. The crew decided to return to Auckland, Descended the aircraft to flight level 330 and landed safely back in Auckland about 90 minutes later. Air China reported that the left-hand engine failed, causing the loss of electrical power for cabin, navigation, communication, and radar. The autopilot continued to work. Passengers reported that the entire left side of the aircraft, including the lights on the outside, the wing, went dark, while the right side remained illuminated. Now... I think those of us who fly these airliners are, are thinking, well, you lose an, an engine or a generator on one side, uh, the bus tie is supposed to kind of kick in and uh, the operating generators should pick up the entire load and you shouldn't have a isolated situation here. But maybe there was some kind of a electrical fault on uh, the left system or whatever they call it. And uh, maybe they, uh, out of safety, the uh, the bus tie relay closed and didn't allow the transfer of power to the other side. Because if that occurred, then it could have resulted in, in the loss of the entire electrical system. So what do you all think? Yeah, I think that's probably exactly what happened. I'm sure there was some type of fault and uh, it was isolated. It, obviously, with it being a newer jet, uh, with newer technology, we don't know what all the electrons are doing in comparison to the type of jet we fly. Maybe maybe Nick would have a better idea on that, but certainly I'm sure there's some type of protection to uh, isolate. It's a Boeing, man. I know nothing. <laughs> yeah, but you know. No, 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 no. I'm talking about a newer technology like what the Airbus has. It's a newer technology than what we're flying. The well, Jurassic other than jet. Boeing have tried to make everything on that aircraft electrical. So uh, I, I suspect when you lose an engine, there's a fair amount of load shedding. So uh, all the fancy uh, mood lighting in the cabin will disappear. You'll probably be left with emergency lighting. Why it'll be on one side and not the other. Uh, that could be a, a fault of the emergency lighting not picking up on one side of the airplane. Uh, and that's what the passengers would see. But uh, how much it affected the uh, crew operationally, I doesn't look like it affected them very much since they seemed to return pretty quickly and had a, a nice safe landing. But uh, no, you know, Simon I, yeah. was very careful to say in this that the left-hand engine. Oh, it did fail. I'm sorry. Um, I was reading the first paragraph and it said it, the uh, the engine developed a problem. But he does go on to say that the left-hand engine engine did fail. But I think the the uh, electrical system on the 
on the 787 is a little bit different than most of the airliners all of us fly because uh, the le- the electrical loads or uh, yeah I guess the uh, the amperage and all, all the frequency and everything is is quite a bit more than uh, what we are used to and each engine has two generators i believe um mounted on the accessory case and i think they also have i think the apu has another i think there's like a total of six at least six generators on that airplane but there must have been some kind of a fault that uh, prevented uh, restoring the power on that uh, yeah that's that's i agree with you jeff i think it's more of a, a buzz fault so i think there's probably yeah. a short and a buzz that uh, prevented them from supplying uh, that bus because with an APU, I and mean, if you get a twin engine airplane, you lose one engine, one of the first buttons you reach for is the APU button to get all the services that that uh, will provide for you and help alleviate the problems of the uh, engine loss. So, uh, assuming they got their APU running, they would have been able to fire up almost all the electrics again. But uh, if they couldn't power a buzz, then it sounds like they may have been a problem uh, with the. Uh, uh, the electrics as well. Yeah. For for comparison's sake, how many generators does the uh, Mad Dog have? Well, each engine has one, has and one. the APU yep. has one, three. Okay. So half. At least. Yep. More or less. Yep. Yeah, and and I wasn't trying to throw Nick on, on, on <laughs> under the bus per se. He's just flying a little bit. <laughs> no he's pun under the Airbus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just you know he's flying a much more modern. Aircraft and and certainly uh, on the eighty eight we have uh, very limited uh, limited technology built pretty much in the fifties. So uh, you know I, I, all the aircraft have to have some type of electrical protection and isolation. I just I, I can't really relate to a newer modern aircraft because uh, the the most modern aircraft I've flown was a CRJ. So uh, to it, tell the truth, Dana, I don't think the technology of uh, power generation will have changed that much. Certainly in uh, the Airbus, it's uh, still uh, very much the case of you've got uh, a generator physically attached to the gearbox, uh, which powers electrical buzzes, which are controlled by buzz tie. Now, the sophistication of the buzz tie and uh, detection of uh, p- potential shorts might have been improved slightly, and there might be slightly different routing, uh, but I think the basic system will be identical. So if you're watched uh, Gilligan's Island, uh, the electrical system on the uh, Mad Dog is very similar to uh, you know the Professor and the Coconuts <laughs> kind of kind of system. I very very similar. Very similar. I mean, our flight attendants even have to stop making their PA when the when the cross tie closes because it, it it just it it's just that clunky of a system. Yeah, the relays it, on it, the uh, it, 88. The relays just are, yeah. But the 90, believe it or not, uh, that particular electrical system was an improvement, and we can start engines, and the transfer of power doesn't interrupt anything. I suppose the sophistications of most of the uh, more modern aircraft is in the load shedding, uh, so that um, in order to keep the generating power for the essential systems, uh, it will pick and choose uh, what to take offline, and usually stuff like uh, cabin entertainment, a lot of the cabin lighting will disappear. Um, so it might have been a slight fault with the uh, load shedding logic in the uh, in the bin liner that um, you know went a bit skew skew whiff. I don't know. Skew <laughs> whiff. And, and when we load shed, we load we load shed a coffee maker. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. That's no joke. 
<laughs> in, in the old, must, in the in the uh, heater blankets. Yeah, there's so some other still, things uh, there too. Yeah, I was going to say but, that but must this, be one hell of a coffee maker. It's a very powerful yes. coffee maker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, Captain Al in our chat room, uh, the uh, venerable Captain Al uh, says it's quite conceivable that the EDGs went out of tolerance quite quickly, and the computer locked out the bus tie to protect the operating side. Yeah, that's most likely. Okay. Um, Hey, you know, we talked about this um, a while back, uh, these uh, all kinds of newfangled suitcases and roller boards and that kind of thing that have electrical, some have electrical motors in them where you can actually ride your suitcase and others have uh, a battery in there so you can plug in all of your electronic devices to keep them all charged up and everything. And they call these things smart luggage. Well, We've also talked about the fact that uh, lithium-ion batteries in the checked baggage uh, compartments is not a good idea. And uh, recently, leading U.S. airlines have all agreed that all of your expensive smart luggage is dumb luggage now. CNN reported uh, last Wednesday, carriers including American Airlines, Delta Airlines, and Alaska Airlines are requiring customers to remove their lithium-based batteries from the bags and carry them personally before stowing them in the aircraft, citing the risk that the batteries could start a fire that burns through other luggage, with one big problem being that the batteries in many smart luggage lines are non-removable. Yeah, so if you can remove your smart luggage, you you have some smart luggage, don't you, Steph? I do. I have um, some smaller bags that have battery packs that you can put into them, Um they're and, definitely not what I con- would consider check luggage, and the battery packs are all removable from the actual okay. luggage. So you could use the luggage without the battery pack. And actually, where I use it more is when not when I'm flying so much, but when I'm doing other travel trips. So and you want the extra backup because the batteries are heavy too. Mm-hmm. When I'm flying, I don't necessarily want all that weight in the luggage either. Right. It's nice to be able to remove them. So this is a common sense thing, I think. Um, I think it's a, yeah. I, a I agree thing. with this 100. So and and like I said, it's. Odd to me that they would make bags that are, first of all, don't have removable batteries. That just seems odd, especially for the weight thing, if you want to lighten the load of the luggage when you don't need it. And also that um, this would be more geared towards check luggage in the first place, because the whole idea is to have that battery pack with you so you can actually charge your stuff. Yeah. So Anyway, just my two cents on that. Um, let's see. I noticed that the maker Blue Smart say they're saddened by these latest changes to some airline regulations and feel it's a step back. Well, I'm terribly sorry, old chap. Perhaps you should have had. A <laughs> I can know. Little... I know why they're saddened. <laughs> yes, exactly right. I would have had a little bit, bit uh, more information before you uh, stuck damn lithium batteries into your bags and then made them non-removable. So uh, it's uh, it's you know it's common sense. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, you had something going there for a little while, but uh, until yep. you get you make your bags with removable batteries, uh, you're going to be stuck. Yep. All right. Um, let's see. Oh, this is a uh, this is an interesting one. I guess I need to play this. Bad boys. What you want? So, a JetBlue passenger who couldn't stop biting people aboard his flight forced his plane to make an emergency landing so that cops could sink their teeth into him. (laughs) This is from the New York Post. (laughs) What a great line. Great piece of journalism this is. Yes. 
Thank you, New York Post. Uh, you always get a, a good laugh from reading these articles in the New York Post. The flight from Los Angeles International Airport to JFK in New York was somewhere over Utah when the unidentified deranged man started noshing on the people next to him, whom he apparently knew, and punching strangers, according to a local CBS report. There was a doctor on board, but when the clinician tried to examine him, the man attacked the doctor, too. Fellow passengers had to help restrain the unruly flyer. Uh, according to uh, this person identified as Tom, uh, I grabbed his hands behind his back and held him there while the flight attendants put the restraints on him. At that point, he started yelling and trying to come towards the flight attendant behind me at the same time. I really had a heck of a time keeping him in place there. The pilot made an unscheduled stop in Las Vegas, and the customer was escorted off the aircraft. Remaining customers resumed their scheduled flight to New York without further incident, according to JetBlue. Yeah, I think an unscheduled stop is a good description as opposed to an emergency landing. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Mm. And I don't think they really needed a doctor for this guy. They needed law enforcement on the aircraft. Yeah. yeah, and a psychologist. Well, yeah. that's after the fact. I mean. Yeah. Very true. I wouldn't have been able to do anything for someone biting someone. That's not. No. Yeah. Stick an apple in his mouth and. <laughs> There you go. Put him do on the you, table. Do you need a cortisone shot. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. Moving on. This is um, kind of a frightening uh, incident that just occurred on the 29th of November. Now, we'll remember the incident at San Francisco International Airport where an Air Canada jet um, was lining up on a taxiway before finally instructed to go around. In that case, uh, the weather conditions at the time were um, clear and um, VMC. In this case, a, a Delta Airlines Boeing 737-900 was performing flight 2196 from Indianapolis to uh, Atlanta, was on final approach to runway 9 right, cleared to land on runway 9 right, when tower instructed the aircraft to go around from low height, and the crew initiated a go around. The tower subsequently explained it appeared that they were over the taxiway. The aircraft positioned for another approach to Atlanta and landed safely on runway 10 about 15 minutes later. I have a little bit of audio from this. If you, let's take a listen. 1973, turn left on November and hold short of Papa. Left on November, hold short of Papa, Delta 1973. Delta 331 at Papa Cross, Roar 9 or left, join Lima and come to ground point 75. At Papa, cross 9 or left, join Lima, point 75, Delta 331. Delta 2196, go around. Uh, 2196 is on the go. You're, it looks like you're over the taxiway. Delta 2196, turn right heading 180. Alright, heading 180, Delta 2196. Delta 2196, continue right turn heading 20. And the, uh, heading the audio recording goes on and they were brought back around to uh, runway 10 and uh, landed safely. Now, the weather conditions at in this particular incident a uh, little bit worse than the uh, clear in a million uh, weather at San Francisco International. Uh, the weather at the time uh, was reported as one-eighth statute mile. Uh, they were reporting RVRs from 5,500 to 6,000 uh, at uh, 1652Z and then at 1552Z a little bit the hour before. They were reporting visibilities uh, as low as 2,800 um, visual range and uh, a 300-foot overcast ceiling. So, you know, definitely... I don't know about you, Dana, but I think that uh, most of us would probably set up in this case, especially if you see one eighth statute mile 
if the runway has the capability, we'd probably be setting up for a Category 3 Autoland. Absolutely. At least Category 2 exactly. or Category 3. But it doesn't appear in this case that the flight that had this issue did that because... Uh, let's see, the NTSB reported the aircraft was aligned with the runway centerline initially. However, during short final, about one nautical mile before the runway threshold began to veer, before the runway threshold began to veer left and lined up for the taxiway November parallel to the runway. The taxiway was occupied. The aircraft went around from about 100 feet AGL already past the beginning of the taxiway. The NTSB reported cloud tops were at 300 feet AGL. Both crew members reported that they were right at the center line on the ILS approach. The localizer showed a full deflection, indicating that they were right of the runway. The captain reported he called the go-around at decision height at 200 feet because he couldn't see the runway or airport environment. And that indicates to me that they were set up for a Category 1 approach, which is a 200-foot AGL decision altitude. Uh, the first officer also reported they called for and initiated the go-around before the air traffic controller instructed them to go around. The flight data recorder was read out. First results suggest that the autopilot was disconnected at 1,200 feet AGL on a heading of 100 degrees. The auto throttle was disengaged at 500 feet AGL. At about 400 feet, the heading changed briefly to 81 degrees. Then the aircraft turned to 87 degrees. During that time, the aircraft descended from 400 to 100 feet. At 100 feet, the pitch changed from 2 to 8 degrees. The aircraft turned right to about 105 degrees. The minimum altitude was recorded at 60 feet AGL. Okay, so. I don't know, uh, you know, Jeff, I don't know on how 7-3 is, but I know, uh, you know, if they're not protecting the signal, you know, we can get really rocky uh, on the uh, on the flight director bars, um, you know, but, coming into Atlanta. But I, I don't see it being, I don't see, it, you know, with it being this low, that, that would be an issue. The the uh, the protection is required when uh, the weather is at this low yeah. ceiling of visibility. So it should have been a solid uh, signal. Yeah, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. Um, but um, I, I just thought it for me. Uh, you know, I'm you know me. I love the aspect of turning the automation off, flying the airplane, hand flying the airplane. You know, I'm a proponent of that. But this is a case where the weather was such that. You don't, this is not a hand flying thing unless there was some reason to hand fly, in, in my opinion. Um, I'm not going, to, I wasn't there. I'm not going to fault the crew here, but it just seems interesting to me that they made the decision to turn, you know, turn the auto throttles off and the auto autopilot off at 1200 feet uh, when. Well, and I was reading back through this. At what point did they have a full deflection on their? ILS too, because um, the localizer had a full deflection at some point too. Yeah, and they were making that correction to get back to the uh, localizer, and yeah. then of course that was probably too much because it gets very, very sensitive the closer exactly. you get. Yep. And uh, it looks to me like uh, they took a pretty big whack at a um, the first officer flying took a big whack at trying to correct the uh, deflection, um, and obviously, or obvious to me, and at least that it was too much. And, uh, and it, yeah. obviously at, at some point, uh, the uh, captain, um, called out for the go around and, you know, they were, uh, according to the crew, they were in the process of going around when the, uh, I guess they popped out of the, uh, overcast and the air traffic controller uh, in the tower said, Ooh, that's, that, that's not good. looks like they're going to about, about to land on the taxiway. And he, you know, on the tape said, you know, go around. 
Yeah, a couple of points uh, from my perspective, Jeff. Uh, a six-degree turn inside a 400 feet is huge. Uh, so you're quite right. You should be nibbling at a couple of degrees at that point, having got the aircraft nicely stabilized uh, on the center, uh, and then just minor changes, just to tweak those needles back towards the middle. Um, so he was making gross changes of his heading. So either he'd looked out the window early and perhaps picked up what he thought was the runway was starting to maneuver for it, or he was just um, not flying the aircraft uh, accurately enough. Uh, and the other thing is um, 200 feet AGL, when you start to go around, uh, for a big airplane like us, we aim for 50 feet of height loss. I mean, we're probably going to get a little more than that, 70, possibly 100. But there's no way we're going to use 140 feet when you've decided to go around at decision height. So either he flew the go around very poorly as well, or they left it way too late. Yeah, it said it, the pitch didn't change uh, until 100 feet. Yeah, so that sounds to me like they were trying to fight a visual approach, got way out of, uh, out of uh, kilter, and then threw a very late go-around in there. But if you're throwing a late go-around in there, boy, you need to pitch that airplane smartly. Because uh, if you're not lined up with the runway uh, at that sort of a height and you've uh, got a taxiway nearby with aircraft parked on, woo, you're in for a big problem. Yeah. Yeah, and... You know, judging based on the time that I'm seeing here, 1652Z, uh, it's during daytime. And, you know, if it's that low, they're going to have the approach lighting system turned up probably, at, if not at max, so pretty close to it. So it's going to be pretty apparent at 200 feet. If you don't see that runway, you ought not to be lining up anything else but that runway. You need to be going around, not dilly-dallying. And it seems to me that, that that's what happened, Yeah, is that, that they continued. And, yeah, they didn't see anything, but the, the first officer who's flying, you know, and probably should, you know, I agree with you, Jeff, this should have been an auto land. I mean, basically, eighth of a mile, RVR, yeah. you know, RVR is 5,000, variable 6,000, 5,500, 5, 6,000. So, I mean, by, by the rule of law, uh, you know, that's, all, that's a mile of visibility. Yeah. But they're reporting one eighth statue mile, which is the tower visibility. So, mm-hmm. you know, they probably saw a piece of concrete and, and, and were continuing and, and decided that wasn't the right piece of concrete and didn't do an aggressive enough go around, is my guess. Right. Now, here's a question for you, Jeff. Uh, when you're doing an auto land, um, who is obliged to fly the airplane. Can either of you fly in the aircraft in order? Well, the, technically, the first officer can fly a autoland under certain conditions, but in conditions below a Category 1, a Category 2 or Category 3 approach, the captain is the uh, pilot in command or, yeah, the, well, the uh, the pilot flying. Um, yeah, that, that's the same for us. We, we uh, I don't even know if we do let the first officers even on a practice one. But it's uh, very unusual is, yeah. for the first officer. I don't, Dana, have you ever done uh, an auto land um, yourself? Yes. Okay. Yes. But it's, it's kind of unusual, wouldn't you say? Not very common. You know, the only time I've actually ever done it is when the, uh, the aircraft is they're specifically trying to get you to do an auto land and it's a cavu day and, and just arm up the auto land, you know, do the test before you leave uh, the origination station, do the test and, mm-hmm. When you get to destination, it's you know either VFR or you know pretty close to it. 
you let the airplane land itself as a first officer. But I would never. I would in this conditions. I would ne- me personally. I'm not doing. I would. I would say captain. It's your turn. Right. My <laughs> my it. last trip, uh, we had. You know, we got in the airplane, and on the flight plan, a note from the dispatcher said, you know, we request that you do an auto land, and. So we did the auto land check and everything else. It was the uh, first officer's leg. And so technically the weather was good enough. We could have had him actually stay at the controls and perform the auto land. But I suggested, and he agreed that it's not something that he's used to doing uh, because it is a little bit different than a normal landing when you have everything hooked up. And I said, why don't you just let, you know, fly it, but then I'll, I'll go ahead and take over for the uh, landing and uh, we'll do the auto land because I'm kind of used to, all the things that happen with the airplane and when to click it off uh, once you're on the ground and that kind of thing for the auto land check or test. <laughs> the ironic thing is, Dana, you know, you have to uh, enter that auto land uh, completion in the ACAR system within, I think, three minutes of block in or something. There's a certain time frame. And I'm not sure if that's the right five minutes, time. five minutes, five minutes. <laughs> and as we were leaving the airplane, I, I, I said to uh, my first officer, I said, uh, did you get that auto land logged? And he goes, oh, no. Oh, hang on, I'll go run back. And then, of course, it was too late. And so I thought, well, no problem. I'll call up maintenance and they can do it manually. Nope, not not now. Everything is automated. It has to go through the uh, ACARS box. So we, we did an Autoland to get the airplane, you know, recertified for Autoland. And it was a waste because we didn't get it in the box in time. Mm. Yeah. Oops. But, uh, yeah. yeah, in this case, uh, you know, the, the visibility uh, requirements and uh, it's visibility completely, but uh, also considering the ceiling, um, that would have been something that both Dana and I, and I agree would have been a, a Category 3 approach um, uh, set up and completely briefed and uh, the captain being the pilot flying and they wouldn't have had this issue at all. So. Anyway, it, it's funny, isn't it? Because uh, in, in our efforts to get uh, an equitable number of legs, considering on our type of operation, uh, you can do one landing uh, and the next day the the other bloke gets his chance at a landing. Um, we'll often uh, let our first officers fly down to Cat 1 limits because they're not allowed, if, if we go into a Cat 3, even though it might be sensible because uh, that way you're guaranteed to get in, um, we're probably going to let the first officer have a go because if so long as it is Cat 1, um, apart from anything else, it's a very good experience for them. Uh, but uh, that's the way they get a landing. So I'm, I don't know if that was the same here, but uh, um, yeah. You know, Jeff, I, I do have to say one thing. I mean, we're looking at, at the me towers. You know, every time you check in when the visibility is below 6,000 RVR, they're going to give you that information. So, you know, they may have been hearing on the radio that they're they're getting, I mean, even 2,800 RVR is... is uh, still Category it's, 1. It's still Category 1. So, in reality, you know, we're looking, we're, you and I are looking at eighth of a mile, statue mile, you know, one-eighth of a statue mile. That's really tower visibility. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I kind of agree with Nick. It was the first officer's leg. Um you know, his mistake really uh, is that he clicked the autopilot off. But I'll, I'll be honest with you. I've actually, our favorite controller in Atlanta, you know who I'm talking about. You're being sarcastic, um, I think. Yes, I think I am. <laughs> um, you know, they were reporting um, 1,200 broken with three miles visibility. 
And I'm like you. I love to click the airplane off and manually fly it as much as I possibly can. Well, you know, I'm hand, I'm hand flying this airplane, expecting to break out at 1,200 feet. There's 1,000 feet, misapproach, you know, clear to land. 500 feet, still no vertical contact. Approaching minimums. And at this point, I'm thinking, holy camoli. And right at just when he called minimums, I was starting to go for go runway lights in sight. And I would, you know was able to make the landing, but our favorite controller never told us it went down to essentially what you're seeing there at about an eighth of a mile with 2,800 RVA to 4,000 RVA, and I hand flew that down to the runway unknowingly because he never told me, right? It had dropped dramatically. Wow. So it, it was a huge change. So, you know, from moment, the, the whole reason why I'm even telling the story is from moment to moment, you don't know, and... Maybe, you know, we're Monday morning quarterbacking this. You know, it is the first officer's leg, and at no point other than the eighth of a mile do, is it below minimums anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so the RVRs were, were, were good. I think, you know, he was overcorrecting it, or she. I uh, can't say he or she. You know, it could be either or. The pilot was overcorrecting. Maybe it's a new pilot or a newer pilot. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was a line check airman that was te- teaching a first officer. We don't know be. all those de- all That's those true. details. Yeah, there is a lot of stuff that we don't know here, and uh, yes. we may not ever know. Um, chances are, most likely, unless we happen to know somebody, you know, in the hierarchy of that airline uh, to find out exactly what happened. Um, we have some good comments in the uh, chat room, by the way. Brian Lewis, he says, uh, "Oh no, I'm sorry, uh, TWA eight eight Tango." That says, you keep saying Autoland. Not everyone does Autoland. Acme 737 operators hand fly Cat 3 with HUD. I'm not, I think that they can still do an Autoland, but I could be wrong about that. I've never flown the airplane for Acme, uh, the 737. And I know they do have a HUD, and they can fly uh, all the way down to Cat 3 men's on the HUD, um, I believe. Maybe just Cat 2, but maybe, I don't know, could be the Cat 3. But in that case, it's only, as far as I know, Dana, you could correct me if you know, um, the HUD on the 7.3 at Acme anyway is only on the captain's side. That is correct. It's so, only on the captain's side. Yeah. So in, and, in this case. Which is surprising. If Why why didn't he have it on? Right. Or maybe the cat, captain did um, and while the first officer was flying. But in this case, um, the, the first officer, well, I, I, even if he did have a HUD over there, I don't think they're qualified to fly uh, no, cat threes uh, on, even on the 7.37. I'm almost no. – Absolutely I think positive. The only, I think the only one might be Alaska that yeah. can do that. But I, so it's I actually kind it. of a moot point, um, really, in my opinion, uh, regarding whether it's an auto land or a land uh, hand flown with the HUD. Uh, this doesn't sound like anything close to that situation to me. Um, but you know, I, I'll tell you, every time I've sat in the jump seat on any seven three seven, unless it's severe clear, I've noticed that m- most of the captains and maybe Captain Al can. Uh, you know, pipe in on this one, but in, you know, on a day like that, especially, I would expect that the captain would be looking through the hut, mm-hmm. even if he's not the pilot flying, right? And which should giving should be giving him, you know, some uh, you know, information. Some really good information. Maybe he was. We don't know. You know, yeah. maybe Could he be. was. Yeah. Um, and let's see. Also, Steve Andrus says that they also fly hand fly. HUD Cat 3. But again, I think that's probably only the captain, not the first officer. I could be wrong again. I don't know what company you fly for and what the policy is there. But at our company, um, 
and I'm thinking probably a Delta as well, um, the captain must fly the uh, Category 3 approach with the HUD uh, because there is no HUD on the first officer's side. Anyway, um, we can we can argue about this all day long, but uh, it's it was a, uh, a situation where it, it, a happy ending and uh, a go-around go was performed, and I'm glad that they didn't hit any other airplanes and kill anybody out there. So, I mean, they did the right thing by going around. So, uh, you can always you can always you can always go around. You can always go around if it don't look right coming down. Don't wait until your socks are flying on the ground. You can always go around. So, um, and then Micah asked uh, last month or a couple months ago, I flew into uh, Portland, Maine with a 30 knot crosswind. Um, and he asked if that was uh, Autoland. And <laughs> no, there is no way. First of all, we're not even allowed to do Autolands um, with that kind of wind. We're limited to a maximum of 15 knots of crosswind. And, um, but I can guarantee you the uh, with the moderate plus turbulence and those crazy winds that that autopilot would have would have stopped it would have failed it would have uh, just disconnected and you know left the airplane to the humans the pilots we call them in the cockpit uh, to fly the airplane so I didn't even attempt an autoland because obviously that wasn't even something that you could do so well, that's one of those things I think a lot of people don't understand is that autopilot uh, auto land systems do have a lot of restrictions because they are really designed to land in very low visibility situations. And in most cases, those low visibility conditions are um, stable air and you don't normally have a lot of turbulence. You get a lot of wind and it blows yeah. out some of that uh, fog and other, right. other things. So, Well, TWA88TT made a very interesting statement here. No, they do not have auto land at Acme on oh. the 7-3. Wow. Okay. I didn't realize that. I didn't know. Yeah. But again, I don't I'm not sure how that changes this situation uh, because if it were uh, uh, so no auto land, then I would have said as captain if, as pilot and command of that airplane, I would have said um, conditions look like they could be lower than category one. Let's go ahead and let me fly the airplane with my HUD and my training and the, you know, the, the ability to get down to, almost nothing with the, with the HUD in the situation. So, but, uh, anyway, as I said, um, oh, and Captain Mal, Al makes a good point. You can always go around unless you've run out of fuel. Mm. Wah, 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 wah. All right. Anyway, good discussion. Yeah, that really. A great one, guys. So. I, it really is. Um, Okay, well, here's an interesting one. I, I don't know if you guys saw recent news about the Pentagon's uh, secret UFO program, uh, apparently or supposedly, um, but uh, this is also a news item related to that. A Navy pilot says he encountered a mysterious aircraft off the coast of San Diego in 2004, and video from the Department of Defense has kicked off talk of UFOs and the possibility of alien life into overdrive. The New York Times shared an interview with now-retired Commander David Fravor on Saturday amid news that, for the first time, a spokesperson confirmed that a program to research UFOs existed at the Pentagon. Fravor's encounter was one 
uh, the Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program was investigating, according to reports by the New York Times and the Washington Post. Somewhere in here, I think, or maybe another article I was looking at, though, they said the amount of money that they spent on this program, and it was like $20 million or something, or maybe less. And I'm thinking, you know, in the scheme of things, in the Department of Defense, that's not a heck of a lot of money to spend on a program. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe that's just me. But uh, there is some... Uh, uh, footage uh what do they call this gun footage or uh hud, HUD footage uh, footage yeah. from it's this just the hud camera yeah. particular flight in 2004 and i have a little bit of the uh, audio from that so let's take a listen and close your ears if you're easily offended Dude, that is a f-ing drone, bro. there's a whole fleet of them look on the asa my gosh we're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. The whole thing, dude. That's not an LNS, though, is it? It's not. That is an LNS, dude. Well, if there's like a thing, it's rotating. I can. I can hear them. I think this That's must exactly have been a, this must have been a real alien sound. encounter, I think. <laughs> okay, that's enough. This doesn't sound like any jet engine I've heard. <laughs> well, it's an alien not engine. Jet engines. <laughs> alien technology. Ah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. The video was made public by the Department of Defense thanks to intelligence officer Luis. Elizondo, who says he wanted to shed light on the secret program that analyzed UFO sightings. A DOD spokesperson told the New York Times that the program, which was funded by Congress with tens of millions of dollars annually, ended in 2012. It was determined that there were other higher priority issues that merited funding, and it was the best interest of the DOD to make the change. So I don't know. What do you think? Is this is this one of those like secret airplanes or secret technologies that the um, the military, you know, wanted to see what would happen if they threw some, you know, F-18 guys out there and uh, to encounter this whole thing and what they would, you know, what, what they would do in the situation. Uh, seems to me like if, if they threw some of their own military guys out there at one of their own aircraft that was secret technology, they would never have allowed them to keep the HUD footage no, true. Uh, or give interviews. So, because, uh, you know, you've signed the, I don't know what the equivalent does in the States, but you sign the Official Secrets Act. And if you reveal something that is classified, it doesn't matter how old you are. If uh, you're still bound by the Official Secrets Act, you could be slapped straight in jail. Mm. So, um, I no, I wouldn't have thought they'd have done it uh, for that reason. Just uh, And I, I, I looked at this footage, I, I, and I haven't seen um, a, a, an image that is displayed in the center of the HUD when it's 54 degrees left of the nose. So whatever sensor this guy's using, I was just a little surprised to see it pitch up in the middle of the HUD because I thought, oh, that's a bit odd. But, of course, it may just be a projection thing. Uh, I'm not familiar with this aircraft, so that might be perfectly normal for them. But uh, I just thought it uh, all looked a little bit weird. So I, I was interested uh, in what you might say about this because you're used to seeing these kind of displays, and I've never seen you know, a HUD like this, and I, I don't, really don't know what I'm looking at here. Well, normally, uh, if you've got a sensor, and this is supposed to be, uh, I think, an infrared tracking sensor, uh, which we didn't have on the 18s uh, that I flew. 
um, it would normally be offered to the side of the HUD where the sensor was pointing, uh, in which case 54 degrees off. The HUD hasn't got that field of view. It would be positioned at the edge of the HUD. Or perhaps in this case, because it was outside of the field of view of the HUD, it uh, zeroed itself. I don't know. And there was just an indication at the top there saying, uh, you know, 50-odd degrees left. And mm-hmm. then it slowly tracked towards the nose and then it went actually through the nose and out the side again. So, I don't know. just looked a bit... Oh, oh, excuse me. I do apologise. Uh, it looked strange, but then again, I'm not familiar with this this bit of tech the guy was using, but uh, I don't know. I was looking at I that. and uh, Go ahead, Steph. I was just going to say, I will, uh, until concrete evidence to the contrary is, is given, I will maintain that I do not think, I think that if UFOs existed in our little realm of the universe, things that we didn't know about, I think they would make themselves more known. It wouldn't be quite so secretive all the time. I think if they were coming to make contact with us, they would do so. So yeah. until there's concrete evidence to the the contrary, but I did like the, um, the description in the San Diego union tribune that they were whitish 40 feet long and shaped like Tic Tacs. <laughs> like a big Tic Tac. It's like, like, a like the guy in an airplane. In airplane. Like it's like tylenol. a giant Tylenol. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I'm looking at this thinking, I pretty, don't pretty know. skeptical. That doesn't look like anything that's real. But of course, you know, if it is an alien, unidentified flying object, then you know, it wouldn't look like anything that we are used to seeing. I guess I don't know. No, I just have a hard time. I think it's our uh, something we've invented that they'd be secretive and not want to be found out. I think if that's you know, yeah. if it were us in that position, we'd want to make ourselves known, right? Like, right. hi, we're here. Yeah, because we're extroverts. We are. Maybe there's a whole lot of alien introverts out there. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, that could be. Could be. (laughs) Whole bunch of alien perverts. Well, really, the whole reason why I wanted to uh, play that is so I could play the UFO alien sound effects card. Yeah, I love it. I mean, uh, (laughs) to be fair, they they spent seem to have spent most of their time tracking it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, one of the one of them did claim that uh, they got close enough to examine one. As soon as they got close enough to examine one, it peeled away. I mean, is it possible it was a um, glitch in their sensor, you know, a, a bit be. of dust floating around that shouldn't have been there? or uh, Like a you floater know. in your eye, you know, yeah, like exactly. sometimes you see things and you're like. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there are two F-18s and I think they both saw it, apparently. Oh, right. Okay. Well, I think I, I could be wrong about that. Maybe it was just two, the two of them yeah. in one jet. That, that could be. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So, well, we'll just have to wait. Hey, if you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, aliens from other uh, planets and universes, uh, please uh, send us feedback to Airline Pilot Guy. Uh, feedback at AirlinePilotGuy.com. Yeah. I mean, they'll be, be listening to the Alien Pilot Guy show. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Well, maybe the host of the that show can send it to us. Oh, that'd be nice. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. A little networking. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. That's it for the news folder, which was quite full this week. And uh, now it's time for the best part of the show. Captain, incoming message. Well, let's start with the first thing in the mailbag here. And uh, this is from Matt. And he said, I stumbled across this wonderful story involving the highly skilled handling of a loss of controls issue. 
aboard a 1970s Delta L-1011. I thought that perhaps Captain Nick might like to add it to the plain tails pile. Blue skies and tailwinds. And this is from Matt Donnermeyer. And uh, although I think that if you do ever talk about this particular incident, uh, Captain Nick, it'll be sometime in the future because I think this was probably spurred on by your lovely uh, rendition and telling of the story of the Alaska 261 flight that had control issues and resulted in a tragic accident. Um, but uh, this is an uh, one that has a happy ending, and it did involve uh, the, the uh, Alaska flight was in 2000, I believe, and this occurred in 1978 on an L-1011, and it could have been just as uh, tragic or even more so, actually, because there were, um, I think, more passengers on board this one. I'm not sure, though. Uh, 41. Oh, actually. never mind. <laughs> no, <laughs> it was almost empty. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, very light. Um, but, uh, anyway, it, uh, the, uh, the, I'm going to put the link in the show notes so you can read about this as well. Oh, you know what I should have done? I should have put this all in the show notes for everybody to follow along. Those of you who are with us live in the chat room. Um, well, I was going to say, if I'm going to turn it into a plain tale, then it might be just, uh, worth, Perhaps not putting it in the show notes so that uh, the story can be oh, a revelation. Okay. Uh, well, that, that link that I just did, disregard it. Remove. <laughs> right, let's see what happens. Well, the people no, that's it. fine. That's fine. Just don't read the don't um, read story about the L-1011. That's true. I won't put it. Well, he, tell you what, I won't put it. it. I won't put it in the uh, show notes of the, uh, of, the re- of the real show notes for the uh, yeah, episode. Yeah, that, that, okay. uh, that would be fair. But, you know, these people, um, hey, come on. They're our friends. Just, oh, I didn't. I didn't mean the chat room. Oh, I, meant I the show see. I, I mistook what you said. I'm sorry. Uh, well, I was going to say was there. I mean, there are a number of uh, um, accidents. This is a particularly good one. Uh, there's uh, the DC-10 and the 747 at the similar period, and they might make a combined make quite a good story. And this would be, of course, a great one because it ends so well. Yes. A bit like that A300 I talked about a little while back that mm-hmm. had a similar thing. When right. they've been hit by a missile and still got the aircraft down with no uh, elevator control. No, in fact, no no controls at all. That's amazing. <laughs> they have no hydraulics. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Okay. Well, uh, thank you, Matt, for sending that in. I just want to wanted to acknowledge that. And again, um, the uh, well, the link will not be in the show notes if you're listening to the audio show right now. Uh, and the the video after the uh, live recording, uh, so you'll just have to wait uh, with uh, with your sitting on your hands and not unless you really feel like it. You can probably Google it and read about the story, but I think you'd be better yeah. off waiting for Captain Nick to do it in a plain <laughs> tales. It'll be yeah. much better. We'll see what we can do. Yeah, um, Chaz, you remember Chaz? He's the uh, the wonderful creative being who uh, comes up with and we haven't heard from in quite some time, uh, Eugene and Dingus. Well, the fact checkers, the fact checkers. Yes. They've been on hiatus. They have. They need to come back because gosh darn everybody knows we do need a serious fact checking here at the APG. But uh, anyway, uh, in the meantime, uh, Chaz's creative juices uh, were uh, put toward the uh, creation of some poetry uh, entitled A a Little Dream. And uh, I'll just read maybe the first stanza, and then you can read the rest. And again, that will be in the show notes for you to read. And I think it's a, it's a wonderful job that Chaz has done with this poetry. How lovely it must be. 
Auto brakes to RTO. Four biggins to Ooch. To stable, she, she bumps and groans, rushing to N1. VR, metal and heart, leap to positive rate, to gear up, to want to hand fly the SID. No LNAV, no VNAV, handoff, ascending to 2992, handoff, handoff, top of climb, and zing to top of descent. Then she starts to glide down like a primal prima ballerina, gracefully bowing, starring. Flight director hints to the approach. Approach check. Auto brakes. She's heavy. Three or four. Speed brakes. Armed. Flaps. Five. Okay, that's a little tease there. You can read the rest. And go ahead. I have a suggestion. I think you should actually read this entire thing and do it maybe as a um, crew log or captain's log. Yeah. And if you need any assistance in falling asleep at night, you can reference that one. Because Jeff's, Jeff's soothing tones, reading poetry, <laughs> it's, it's a wonderful poem, Chaz, but it'll yes. help out a lot of people as well. You know, it's, you know, it's ironic, Steph. What's that? I was starting to fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> to his voice, the way up. he was doing that. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> it's just, it's just so is, very uh, soothing. Maybe put it, it really to uh, some, some music. like Some uh, light music. I don't yeah. know. Um, something like that. No, that's a little bit too that's, energy. That's too upbeat. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, maybe that's good. A good suggestion, Doctor Stuff. I, I like it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well. Yes. And then you can have the the whole version to listen to if you are a Coffee Fund cadre member. There that's right. There you go. There's some incentive for you. <laughs> Nick, you were going to say something. No. Nope. Okay. I'm sorry. Thought I heard something. Okay. Oh, Liz says in the chat room, Jeff reading equals white noise. Um, <laughs> Goes along with the hair. Yeah. White, white hair, white mustache. Oh, I get it. Okay. Um, let's see. This has been in the feedback, uh, the mailbag for a little while. Um, not too long though. Um, Mike sent this in. He said a couple of weeks ago, a group of 14 pilots from my EAA chapter 196 got a tour of the control tower at Boston Logan airport. One of my chapter mates, uh, Graham Smith, made the following observations. We clamber up eight flights of stairs and into the cab, clockwise around, coffee machine, fridge, microwave, traffic management screens, ATIS computers, tower controllers, ground controllers. In the center, lighting controls and a supervisor with screens that overview everything and allow them to act as gatekeeper. The tower owns clearance, ground, tower, and city tours. Uh, Approaches Nashua. Approach is in Nashua, New Hampshire. Runways with approaches over the water have a lot of approach lighting on poles out in the water in the main shipping channel into Boston. So, unusually, Boston Tower also has AIS, think ADSB out for ships, integrated into their radars. When a ship enters the safety zone at the approach to a runway and is over 174 feet tall, then landings have to be aborted until the ship is clear from penetrating the glide slope. Some container ships, most cruise ships, and some very large yachts will stop operations. At the traffic management screen, every dot, every red dot is a plane in the air headed for Boston. 
hover over the dot and you get the call sign type, etc. So more clicks and you get the planes cleared route displayed. When my group was there, there were 64 planes over the lower 48 headed for Boston. You can scroll the screen anywhere in the world and find the others coming in from other countries. Another click and you can display every plane on a filed flight plan. The lower 48 turned almost solid yellow with crosses of planes in the air. Streams of planes on great circle routes from Europe and Asia stand out. The only other part of the world looking remotely as busy as the U.S. was around Heathrow and Amsterdam in Europe. Next was the ATIS generating computer. Type in the observations via specific codes and it generates the computer voice on the frequency. On screen, HVY Wildlife generates the bird and wildlife warning in the broadcast. Huh, I didn't know that this the way they did that. The screens with the best view of the airport are tower frequency. We saw plenty of arrivals and departures, including an inbound, first visible in the gloom on a six-mile final, a Lufthansa 747-800, which is currently the largest scheduled plane that Boston handles. No A380s. In the winter, they don't have enough big. Uh, they don't have big enough de-icing gear for the A380. The ground surveillance radar shows everything on the surface. Many airport trucks are fitted with ADS-B out and so also show on the screens. Boston was a test airport for putting ADS-B on trucks. Ground control are also keepers of the light gun squirreled away in a locker below them. As I suspected, they don't know the signals either. They are all written on the side of the light, which by the look of it probably served on the bridge of a World War II destroyer. That's, yes, yeah. that's perfect. I'm so glad to know that, too. It's like, who really knows the light? Yeah, what, what are the oh, signals? Okay. Uh, I don't know. Uh, that's, I have it written down here on the back of my kneeboard so I can reference it. If, yeah. um, then he goes on. Uh, we're almost finished with this. Uh, no PCL, pilot-controlled lighting in Boston. Airport lighting is controlled from a touch screen. Choices include manual control of segments and brightness or leaving it in auto when it will balance using as little power as possible with lighting appropriate parts in response to traffic. Some of the lighting out of the uh, out in the bay is still on big manual switches left over from the Cold War as one controller put it. He said a very cool trip and he's uh, attached some photos. This is from Mike Smith uh, from Maynard Mass and uh, he's a Sonics builder and a Sonics pilot. S-O-N-E-X, a great little home built and uh, uh, great pictures. Mike, thank you very much for sending them in and, and uh, relaying and uh, relating that story of your tour to the Boston Tower. Really cool. Yeah, I have indeed been held off while some boat floated past the end of the runway. Yeah, they have special, even for departures, they have special procedures uh, for ships in the harbor, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, one thing that's never changed is how cool it is to be up on that tower. I've, I've had that exact same uh, experience before um, in, in, at Logan. I've actually had it in L.A. as well. Uh, wow. Two really, yeah, two really unique different towers, um, and, but yet equally as awesome. It's just amazing uh, the technology and, and, and what they do every day with, with as little as they have up there. It's, it's crazy. Well, you see, you saw the three controllers here. That's pretty much what they have, and then the supervisor behind them. That's what they have working everything. Wow! You know, I've never done a tower uh, tour. I should do that. It's awesome. You got to do it. Yeah, I need to do it at a, a large airport like this. I've been to some yeah. smaller, like Class D airport towers. Those are still cool because you see how little they have, but you know, still managed to do is quite it scary? a bit. Which is one person? <laughs> no. <laughs> 
No, well, I don't want to ever fly again. <laughs> pretty much what she imagined it might be. So. Okay. Yeah. That'd be a pretty good idea for an Atlanta meetup, by the way. Yeah, that would. I wonder if, if they do group be a great idea. tours like that. Yes, yes, they do. Okay. Well, you know, hey, if the EAA can, uh, you know, uh, 196 or whatever it was, I, I've already closed that tab. Let's see. EAA chapter 196. Hey, what a memory. Like a steel trap. Um, can do it. Then what? the APG can do it too, right? Chapter I have a, 199. <laughs> I have a Atlanta controller supervisor, Anthony. I won't use his last name on my speed dial. Ooh, there I, you go. I had him, had him my, uh, on my jump seat about a year and a half ago. And it's really a nice guy. Okay. Uh, moving on here. Um, Alistair. Uh, writes in in response to Ryan's question in episode 302 about which flight school to choose in the Ottawa area. I agree with the APG cruise cruise assessment. Guaranteed interviews may not mean a lot by the time you're you are done with the program, and the possibility of getting into the Jazz Pathways program is by no means a guarantee either. My understanding is that Jazz has only hired the top one or two, or in some cases zero, candidates from the program at the participating colleges. Speaking of participating colleges, there are a few to choose from in the province of Ontario and more in the rest of Canada. A diploma in aviation flight management is not going to get you very far should you look for a job outside of aviation uh, and may not get you any farther ahead in aviation than not having one. Ironically, my current position is in airline management, although I do not have an aviation management diploma. My university degree in physics and mathematics doesn't sound overly applicable, but I suppose it taught me how to learn. At the moment, none of the major airlines in Canada officially require a degree or aviation diploma, although it may score you some points in the selection process. Recent trends indicate Canada's largest and only legacy airline has almost exclusively hired pilots with a university, university degree or aviation diploma. Every other airline hires many without you likely get as many or more points for having an unrelated university degree. Uh, don't think that I'm again. Don't think that I'm against aviation colleges, but the two that I recommend most are unique in that the flight training is conducted by the college itself, not contracted to a local flight school. The cost of flight training is also government subsidized in these two cases, so tuition is about the same as most other community college programs somewhere in the five to $6,000 per year range for a two to three year program. This makes aviation accessible for many who cannot afford the 60 to $100,000 costs of flight training at the private or non subsidized colleges. Wow. Five to $6,000 a year. Wow. Wish that's not bad. No. That's a really good deal for flight training. I don't know how much flight training you get out of that for the two to three years, but you know, assuming it takes you through several ratings, um, yeah, I'd imagine bad. at least commercial. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I, I don't know how it is if you're paying for your flight time on top of that, or if that includes that. But that's that's a good deal. And you, you get a college degree as well, training. right? Yeah, exactly. So nice. Kudos to Canada for that. Yeah. Um. So he goes on. So my suggestion to Ryan would be to consider the costs and pick what is giving him the best value. Don't forget to factor in the cost of living away from home if you're considering a school a long distance from home, as well as the difference in timelines. If one school is $1,000 cheaper, but you have to pay for another 12 months of rent and food before you can fly for a living, take that into account. At the same time, you don't have to rush to get into an airliner. Canada doesn't have the 1500 hour rule. 
Although up until a year or two ago, almost nobody got a job at one of the regional or major airlines without at least that much experience. That being said, there are many flying jobs out there that offer the chance to see many parts of this country you would not know existed any other way. Flying smaller aircraft is a great way to build experience and skills that will be invaluable any time in your career if and when something goes awry, by which I mean a situation where you have to think on your feet when there isn't a script or drill for this malfunction in your standard operating procedures or quick response handbook. A couple of thousand hours of hand flying a float plane, caravan, King Air, Metroliner, or MU-2, a great aeroplane, by the way, in my opinion, will make you a better airline pilot than getting a CRJ or Dash 8 type rating at 250 hours. But I may be a little biased. No matter which path Ryan chooses, I think he's getting into the industry at a good time, and I wish him the best of luck. Regardless of where you train, be sure to network. Internal references are very big at a few of the major airlines, and even in my experience at a smaller company, a reference from a company pilot I know and trust is worth more than a large list of anonymous references. So thank you. Uh, very well thought out and uh, detailed feedback from Alistair. Uh, obviously, he has um, you know, some experience with this. All right. Left the rest of the crew speechless. <laughs> Sorry, I thought someone else was going to jump in there. I don't know why. That's okay. That's all right. <laughs> no, I think I was gonna, actually going to say that I think Alistair is, uh, you know, certainly in line with our thoughts on on a lot of this stuff. For especially when he starts talking about you know getting you know thousands of a thousand hours hand flying a float plane, caravan, King Air. That experience, I think, is like he said, is really invaluable. So. Yep. Honestly, I don't think any of us had anything to add to that because it was so well-written. That's true. Very exactly. well thought out. So it's not a whole lot you can add. Well, then let's move on to Jake in Salt Lake. Hi, APG crew. This is Jake in Salt Lake. Just wanted to share some recent experiences I had and ask a question. I'm uh, currently an instrument-rated pilot as of recently back in September, and I'm now working on my commercial rating, and I've just been time-building in a little light sport aircraft, it's the uh, Czech Aircraft Sport Cruiser, which is, oddly enough, one of the best airplanes I've ever flown. Um, very fun airplane to fly, a little two-seat stick-and-rudder airplane. But uh, I was flying up in the mountains of Utah, which is a very pretty place to fly, but poses some rather difficult challenges sometimes. I was, as I experienced yesterday, I was at an airport called Morgan, which is 42 uniform, and this airport's at about 5,000 feet sea level and fairly short runway, but the terrain around it is the biggest challenge. That one of the runways you take off and you pretty much follow the terrain out and it's, you, this train slopes down away from the runway. But the other runway, you take off and you're taking off directly into a box canyon, which that runway is runway three. Well, I uh, didn't quite think far enough ahead and I wanted it to land and... As I was coming down on runway three, I was planning on using runway two one to take off, but wanted to use runway three for some reason to land. As I came into my flare, deer ran right out in front of me onto the runway. So, being an APG listener and sufferer of the APG syndrome, I uh, was always was ready to go around. So, I added full power, went around, cleaned up the flaps. But being I chose the wrong runway to begin with, I took off and went around straight into the box canyon. So that was a very interesting experience, trying to give myself enough terrain clearance to turn around and fly out of the canyon. Luckily, the Sport Cruiser has a very tight turning radius, and 
can climb very slowly at a very slow airspeed. So I was able to do it, but learned a lot from that. And I'd also like to share to the APG community to practice good aeronautical decision-making skills and think ahead and be ready to go around if you need to. And always expect the unexpected, I guess, as that exact airplane, I had a bird strike in the day before that flight. So it's been an interesting week of flying for me. This poses my question. Have any of you ever had to go around due to a runway incursion? I, albeit wildlife or other aircraft or vehicles. It just, that was the first time I've ever had to go around because of a runway incursion, especially because of deer. So, uh, love the show. Listen to it on my drives into work and flying. Um, keep up the good work. Blue skies, tailwinds, and uh, for all the glider pilots out there, cloud streets. Bye. Cloud streets. Okay. Interesting. Um, mm. So I'll, I'll just quickly put in my answer to that question, and then I'll let the rest of you do your responses. But uh, I'd say 99% of the time that I've had to go around are because of, well, runway incurred. In other words, there's a the, uh, runway is occupied, and I can't land because the airplane's still on the runway. So I had to go around. That's my experience. I have also had to go around because of deer on the runway. And it actually happened to me frequently when I was doing my, um, not frequently, but enough that I remember it well. And it was more than once, certainly, um, while I was doing my private pilot training. It was just the nature of that small airport. There were quite a bit of deer actually on the airfield. And especially towards the end of the day, you had to watch out for them because they would all come out of hiding and, you know, be grazing next to the runway and occasionally wander onto the runway. So, yeah, you just go around. And um, coincidentally, I have also flown into 42 Uniform, Oregon County in Utah. So I know exactly where he's talking about. And it is an interesting airport with a lot of unique challenges. It's right. It sits. um, So it's runways three and two one. And it is on a slope, so it's a, you know, if you're landing on runway three, I believe you're landing uphill, and I forget exactly what the uh, the grade of the runway is, I think he <sighs> may have mentioned it there, but then if you're taking off on 2-1, it's downhill, and it sits right up against the side of a hill there, um, but you can actually, um, you know, do a, a left pattern into runway 2-1, so you're coming around right next to the, the side of the mountain there as you're coming around, and it's not a lot of room, so you really have to plan it very well. It gives you a lot of interesting um, uh, visual illusions when you're trying to land and take off there. So it's not a large runway to begin with. It's something like 3,000 feet by 50 feet, I think. So um, yeah, a lot of, lot of interesting things going on at Morgan County. It's up at about 5,000 feet elevation as well. Were you cringing when he talked about uh, having to go around a runway three in the Box Canyon? Well, I'm trying to remember what's to the left. I, I, I remember it being reasonably open that if you go around and you and you make your turn pretty quickly um I, I think you're okay there so i'm assuming that's what he he did i'm trying to remember exactly what it looks like but um there's not a lot of room but it, it's doable if you plan it well i guess the lesson to this, the story is that you know if you're picking a runway to land and you're thinking well we're gonna i'm gonna land because that's what many of us do it's the, our human nature uh, and are not thinking okay what happens if i can't land and what am i going to do um you know, it, it's a good point that that's something that we need to consider. Exactly. So always know what your your options are going to be there, landing or going around. So. Go arounds. Captain Nick, what's uh, the most common reason for that? Well, like you, Jeff, is because the uh, guy ahead has managed to vacate the runway uh, quick enough. Um, or perhaps uh, um, 
you know, Washington or New York or slid us in behind a slow mover. And um, particularly in the 600, our approach speed's pretty high. Uh, so uh, we're often coming down. They say come back to uh, minimum approach speed. Well, that's still 160 knots for us. So if you've got a slow mover up front, you're still catching him up. That's quite common. Um, I've never gone around for something like a vehicle or an animal on the runway, but I did encounter a rather strange um, occurrence during a takeoff uh, out of Lagos um, when uh, I glanced down at 100 knots to check my speed indicator on the call I'm flying the takeoff. When I raised my eyes and looked back down the runway, there was one of the local inhabitants trotting across the runway in front of me. Um, and uh, he was a little distance away, but, uh, you know, he was. there's no way he was going to be, uh, uh, well, I was still going to be on the ground when we got to him, which is, uh, I thought, well, if I reject, I, I'll still be on the ground when I hit him. There's a chance I might get airborne before we get to him. Uh, and he looked across at me, I remember this, and uh, broke into a trot and uh, sped up a little bit. And he just got clear of the runway when we whistled past him. And I told air traffic uh, they didn't seem the least bit interested. <laughs> uh, but um, oh, I need to send you an article that I came across the other day of of Lagos. Maybe I should have sent it into or put it in the uh, show notes for the news about a uh, aircraft getting uh, robbed while on the taxiway after they had landed. They hadn't <laughs> even gotten to the the gate or wherever they were parking yet, and someone managed to break into the baggage compartment and steal something. <laughs> I love else. it. Yeah, my my father told me of uh, aircraft in his company in Ni- Nairobi, which is why I used to call the place <laughs> Nairobi. Um, uh, that came back to uh, the apron because they kept getting a cargo door warning light coming on and going out again, and they w- went back and the engineers all looked at it and they said this door's fine, so they tried again. And every time they got down to the far end of the runway, this light kept coming on. <laughs> And that's exactly what it was. They found that uh, some of the locals were uh, running along beside the aircraft and they would uh, get one guy on his shoulders and they'd reach up and they'd uh, open the cargo door and they'd grab something, a, a bag, and pull it out and then slam the door again. And uh, uh, they'd run away with a suitcase. And when the next time the airplane came down, they'd do the same again. So uh, that's, I think that's hilarious. But. Uh, <laughs> I just wow. thought you would get a kick out of that story. Since what if they got anything Lagos. valuable? I guess it's like uh, roulette with the uh, suitcases, right? Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I already did that. You missed it. I got it. I <laughs> just wanted okay. to do it again. <laughs> oh, Brilliant. man. That's crazy. Hey, it's amazing what people do when they're desperate. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Dana, yeah. how about your experience with go around? Same thing. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, the, the regional jet, the RJ, the 50-seater, Canary 50-seater, uh, which is the 200, uh, it had a very high approach speed. So I found that we had to uh, do far more go-arounds there uh, on that airplane than I've done here at uh, the ACME. Um, you'd think that a small airplane like that wouldn't be an issue, but there's no slats on them. It's only a flap airplane, so... Approach speed normally be about what uh, Nick was talking about, 150, 160-ish range uh, if you're heavy. So uh, I can think of four or five times, and it's the exact same thing. Uh, You know, the aircraft in front of us didn't clear in time. Uh, I'll never forget my first go-around as a pilot, and that was flying into Toronto in a a snowstorm, and uh, 
a silver airplane with red, white, and blue on it. Didn't clear the runway in time in a snowstorm. So that was my first go around ever as an airline pilot. Um, animals, yeah, I've uh, had a couple of animals. You're going to laugh at this, but uh, up in New England, I've went around in Norwood Airport. People probably have heard of that one before, just south of the Boston area. There were turkeys on the runway. So, wild turkeys. Gobble, gobble, so, uh, gobble, gobble, gobble. Gobble, gobble, gobble. Good thing it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't November, so you know. <laughs> you weren't looking yeah. for Thanksgiving dinner. No, no, uh, and you know, fortunately, it's the eastern part of the Massachusetts, so it's not necessarily too redneck. Otherwise, to find everybody out there looking for roadkill turkeys. So, uh, but no, that's that's about my experience. Exactly what you guys have talked about. Okay. Brilliant. Well. Hey, you know what? This would be a great time for this week's installment of Plain Tales. Take it away, old pilot. Charlie, old St. Nicholas, lean your ear this way. Don't you tell a single soul what I'm going to say. The old pilot's Plain Tales. Christmas outtakes. Christmas Eve is coming soon, now you dear old man. Whisper what you'll bring to me, tell me if you can. Moments after, he was targeting two long-range artillery... Artillery? <laughs> What's an artillery? When the clock is striking twelve, when I'm fast asleep, Down the chimney, broad and black, with your pack you'll creep. Oh, I hope this works. <laughs> All the stockings you will find hanging in a row Mine will be the shortest one you'll be sure to know But lacked several divine, divine features <laughs> Divine or divine? Tupolov needed to have the trailing edge elephants Elephants? <laughs> elephants? No, no, elephants Johnny wants a pair of skates Susie wants a sled This vortex created the low-speed lift needed and gave Commodore a considerably barking approach Nelly wants a picture book Yellow, blue and red It is possible that, surprised by its presence Kozlov manoeuvred to avoid it and overstressed or stalled the Tuplov. However, it may have been that the abrupt manoeuvre was merely an attempt to impress the crowd. Some thought that a camera given to the Pope... Pope? <laughs> to the Pope? Now I think I'll leave to you what to give the rest. Choose for me, dear Santa Claus, you will know the best. As World War II progressed... America, Australia and Britain had their own versions standardised by the combined Kumei... <laughs> Bollocks. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> For example, hotel isn't hotel, it's hotel. But Charlie, old St. Nicholas, lean your ear this way. It continues... Uh. Oops. Don't you tell a single soul what I'm going to say. They risked. They risked. They risked. I don't know what I said. Christmas Eve is coming soon. Now, you dear old man. There were, of course, major communication. Whisper what you'll bring to me. Tell me if you can. Uh, oh, <laughs> pardon me.
whilst his first officer struggled to position... Position? The big goof-up upset Western Airlines and infuriated the Federal Aviation Administrator, however... In Buffalo, which once saw the likes of Butch Cassidy and Buffalo Bill Cody, the townsfolk were delirious with Droy. Oh dear, it's not something to be delirious about. Up on the housetop, reindeer paw. For those Canadian aviation enthusiasts among you, Amongst you. <laughs> Out jumps good old Santa Claus. Other words were twist, twisted. Down through the chimney with lots of toys. For those Canadian aviation enthusiasts, Amongst you. Uh, amongst you. <laughs> Done it again. All for the little one's Christmas joys. It was the spring of 1963 and the USSR spy network. Directorate. Directorate? What's a directorate? I don't know what a directorate is. Ho, 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 who wouldn't go? Ho, 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 who wouldn't go? He was fruitlessly struggling through his quick release. Quick release. (laughs) Up on the housetop, click, click, click. They continued to climb past 3,000 feet and the clap. Clapton. <laughs> What's a Clapton? Down through the chimney with good Saint Nick. Fearful that the real Ferguson would again have to decline to attend the celebration named in his honour, the Chamber of Commerce invited any people who could prove their names were Lowell Ferguson to attend the festivi- festiv- <laughs> festivities. Tally-ho is a hunting term which dates back to around 1772 and is derived from the farm... Oh, thank you, dogs. First comes the stocking of Little Nell. Oh, dear Santa, fill it well. NATO called it Charger. It was the 60s, and whilst the cool boys had... What do they have? They had nuts. Give her a dolly that laughs and cries. One that will open and shut her eyes. Repeated attempts to get the required permissions failed. But he flew his Curtis Robin OX-5 monoplane to Floyd Bennett Field in Brooklyn anyway. It's not Brooklyn, it's Brooklyn. Ho, ho, ho. Who wouldn't go? Ho, 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 who would? As such, the cockpit voice recorder had been overwritten by subsequent flights, but with the salty... The salty? <laughs> the salty secret... No, it's not salty. Oh, up on the housetop, click, click, click. His case was that... Under the FAA NASA Aviation Safety Reporting Program, he was it. Oh, up Down through the chimney with good Saint Nick. Whilst the world of aviation and the military was getting themselves standardized, themselves standardized, I think that should be. Look in the stocking of little Will Oh, 
just see what a glorious fill. On being called in, he sidled up beside the general, who was enjoying a nicely hung peasant. Here is a hammer and lots of tacks, whistle and ball and a whip that cracks. Ha ha ha, no, a nicely hung pheasant. <laughs> ho, 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 who wouldn't go? Ho, 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 who wouldn't go? Well, that's it from Plain Tales for the moment, I'm afraid, but more to come after the holidays. All that is left for me to say is a wonderful thank you to everyone who has taken the time to listen and especially to those of you who have written in with suggestions for new subjects or just to pass on your thanks. I really enjoy the challenge of producing these stories and look forward to doing many more. However, for the moment, what I should really be doing is wishing you all a very Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. On the housetop, click, 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 down through the chimney with good Saint Well, Nick. that's it from Plain Tales for the moment, I'm afraid. But, oh God, I can't even get that right. <laughs> wow. That's fantastic. Nice job, nice my, job. My favorite of that, the whole thing, is that Nick offers apologies for his own mess-ups when no one else is listening, <laughs> Nobody and else. also offers apologies for them. his burps. Yeah, well, yes, you're, you're quite right. The only so thing cool. that I can say about all of that is, who does not enjoy a well-hung pheasant? Or peasants. <laughs> Well hung peasant. Oh my god, that's hysterical. Yeah. Great stuff. Great Glad stuff. Thank you, Captain Nick, for not only that, but all of the and trust me, I know that there are just a huge number of these things. <laughs> Still working on the uh I, that's my goal. By the end of the year I'm gonna have that uh plain tales page and RSS feed all set so that uh, you all can enjoy listening to those over and over and over again. And uh, they're definitely worth listening to many times. Oh, thanks very much. All right. Let's see. Let's move on. It's hard to, you know, what are we going to do? How are you going to top that? You can't. It's just, yeah. yeah. It's all right. over. Merry yeah. Christmas, guys. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Take care, everybody. Uh, Merry Christmas. <laughs> wow. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, PR um, writes, uh, his, he's, his nickname is Guns. I thought I'd drop you a line to give you an update on my journey. I was unbelievably excited to hear you read my email out on the air as I was pulling in the flight school in Napa, California in early September. I started my flight training with gusto, only to have my flight school go bankrupt after just three days of flying. Mm-hmm. It was a great school run by a former Air France jumbo captain. Well, there's your problem right there. Um, very airline-oriented procedures from the checklists, call-outs, jet-bound call sign, and a realis- realistic dispatch. I quickly shifted to another flight school in San Jose, and after three months of intense flying, as much as seven hours a day of hand-flying a Piper Warrior, I am now, wow, seven hours a day. I am now a multi-engine commercial instrument rated pilot. (laughs) 
Brilliant All job. Right. Congratulations. Ray. Congrats from the APG. All right. So uh, I've accumulated uh, the 200 plus hours of total time. I need to convert my license back in India. I particularly enjoyed particularly. It sounds like the outtakes of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you leave all the outtakes in though, Jeff. Yes, I do. Because I'm too lazy to take them out. <laughs> I particularly enjoyed using my time building to fly angel flights flying needy patients to and from their doctor appointments. I did a long trip to Phoenix, Arizona from the Bay Area, 6.1 hours with one stop on the way. Thoroughly enjoying the freedom of flight afforded in the U.S. I was just hearing you folks talk about the impending induction of Kodiak seaplanes in India and just realized I may need to add a single-engine seaplane rating to my license. Given that I run half marathons, I'm beginning to creep closer to emulating Dr. Steph, but... I guess I'll never be runner up for the Miss World contest. You, you never no. know. I think you're well, giving uh, me a run, a run for the money there, Guns. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, I'm now back in India and ready to do battle with the red tape of the Indian regulator for converting my license and being able to fly in India. Wish me luck and keep up the great work on the podcast. Cheers. And this is PR Ganapathy. Uh, or ganapathy? I always say ganapathy. What would you say? That sounds Anybody? good. Guns, I think, is uh, easier. Guns. guns. Guns is much easier. <laughs> yeah. Yes. By the way, uh, in his um, email signature uh, is the uh, his website prganapathy dot com. Just look in the show notes for that. And uh, he has he's an author. Uh, he's written several books, and you can find them. Um, by clicking on the link that he's included in his email. And I believe they're on Amazon. Although when I clicked on the link, it was the Indian version of Amazon, the Amazon store in India. And um, his books looked really, really expensive, but it was because it was rupees, the uh, rupees. Yes. (laughs) I'm not sure what the conversion rate is, but I hope it's like thousands of rupees. I think it's about half an inch to the dollar. Okay. Let me get a stack of notes about half an inch thick. Yes. Oh, okay. I was thinking, huh? Inch? That yeah. yeah it's, I forget exactly what it is, but it's quite a bit of rupees to a dollar. So, Great news. And I can't imagine that uh, the regulators over there would uh, turn down somebody with the training and experience that you have uh, from you Oh, know, I'm sure they won't. The it's just that India is renowned for its um, complicated bureaucratic system. So. Oh. Yeah, I it will probably will involve a lot of time and effort and patience. So, first of all, congratulations for getting your license, and I really do wish you luck getting it converted. Absolutely. All right. Any anybody want to uh, take this next one, um, Chris, uh, and the uh, Christmas tree lights? Oh sure. sure. Okay, go for it. You know, go ahead, Steph. Are you sure? Doesn't matter. Okay. Yeah. So this is from foxnews.com. Chris sent this to us. It says, plane draws Christmas tree in the sky on festive flight. So a jolly Airbus drew an intricate Christmas tree in the sky on a test flight. Uh, This is courtesy of Flight Radar 24 looking at the picture there. An empty Airbus plane flying out of Hamburg, Germany, was feeling the Christmas spirit Wednesday afternoon as it mapped out a Christmas tree with ornaments in the sky. The nearly five and a half hour round trip flight left the Hamburg airport at 1247 p.m., I'm assuming local time, for a festive trip around the country. Uh, the cheery test flight mapped out a three-tiered tree complete with stump ornaments and a very long tree topper, as seen on Flight Radar 24. 
The in-flight holiday artwork was part of the Hamburg-based flight test team's evaluation of new and in-use planes for maintenance and certification. The unique flight flight pattern is similar to a stunt the Boeing 787-800 Dreamliner pulled in August, where it drew a picture of itself in the sky. So it is a very festive uh, Christmas tree over the country of Germany. Um, I think there was some criticism that it was not a very symmetrical Christmas tree, so definitely kind of a uh, freelance approach to uh, Christmas tree drawing in the sky. But very creative. Very creative. And yeah, I mean, very, trees very aren't symmetrical anyway. Uh-huh. Well, we're talking about the different sides, though, left and right. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you look at a tree. I mean, it's not perfectly symmetrical. Oh, trees. Right. Oh, these yeah. are trees. Okay. No, yeah, no, tree, three trees. So, but yes, very, very fun way to get in the Christmas spirit. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, somebody in the comments said something, at least there's something that they can use the A380 for. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I believe or it was. It was a, this one was drawn by yeah. <laughs> an A380, though, if I remember correctly. I don't think it says it in the article, but yeah. it was an A380 that mapped out the tree. Yeah. I'm wondering what exactly they were doing up there. Just, uh. Hey, hey, we got this airplane. Why don't we go up there and draw a Christmas Joyride. tree? Joyride. Got the keys to this A380. Let's go take it for a spin. <laughs> yep. It wouldn't burn that much gas. Five-hour flight? It was five about hour. a five-hour flight, yeah. It was long. Yeah. Yeah. There you oh. go. Anyway, I just thought I'd throw that in there because of the Christmas show, right? Excellent. Sort of. Yeah. yeah. I like the okay. way that uh, the airplanes, uh, they're sitting at the top of the tree. The airplane symbol. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, what does it say? A, t- a topper? Is that like um? So we usually put like angels at the An top. An angel or a star tree. or something yeah, decorative that's, that's on the top. Similar. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I guess Airbus pilots put an Airbus at the top of their tree. Ah, well, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, here's some. Um, Wouldn't want to put a Boeing out there and set the tree alight. <laughs> Hello, APG crew. This is Thomas Witherspoon here, aka Tom Foolery. I just made up that handle because everybody has a handle and I thought I wouldn't look as cool if I didn't have a handle because everybody knows everybody in the APG is uh, cool, right? It's a cool thing to do, right? Anyway, um, greetings to all of you. And uh, I was just listening to episode 301 and a question popped up in my mind as I'm out here on a hike here in Asheville, North Carolina, where I live and uh, walking the dog. I always get all these thoughts when I'm listening to your episodes and I never write them down. So I've decided I'm just going to make a quick recording and ask this question. Here's my question. Let's say you're flying in to an airport and crosswinds and weather conditions are at about the maximum threshold that your aircraft can is rated to, to take on. And potentially gusts could exceed that at times. But you're on your final coming in what aircraft, out of all the aircraft you've ever flown, what aircraft would you choose to be in in adverse conditions? Now, you know, I'd be really curious because you guys have had so many experiences in the military, general aviation, and commercial aircraft over the years. Which one would you pick to handle crosswinds and you'd feel more comfortable landing in? Of course, you know, <laughs> Nick's going to pick a Boeing. <laughs> Sorry, Nick. And, uh, but actually, you know, I'm sure there's some military aircraft Nick's flown uh, in Australia, in the United Kingdom, and uh, probably you, Jeff, uh, in the U.S. Air Force, and uh, Steph, you've flown a lot of general aviation aircraft, and Dana, 
um, lots of regional aircraft and general aviation. So I'm really curious, which one would you pick? Thanks again for the great show. Love it. I'm a certified APG syndrome sufferer and uh, haven't tried the medicine that uh, Miami Hick recommended yet. I'm not quite that brave. Take care, guys. Talk to you later. All right. So I know what my pick would be, but uh, let's start with Dana. Well, my, my pick, uh, that's a very interesting one with crosswinds. Um, or adverse weather conditions. Yeah, and av- adverse weather conditions. You know, I, I'm, I'm a very big proponent of the Piper Warrior when I was doing my training. It's a much more stable platform than most other single-engine aircraft out there. So um, I enjoyed flying, hand-flying that aircraft down at minimums all the time. And uh, I, I found it to be an excellent training, uh, IFR training uh, uh, platform. And that's among the 30... 37 or 38 general aviation aircraft I've ever flown. Uh, of course, the the um, Mad Dog, it's a great aircraft as far as really bad weather conditions. Uh, it handles crosswinds quite nicely. Uh, and, of course, it can auto land, so that makes it uh, a whole lot um, a lot better. I mean, with that, of course, then, uh, you know, I haven't flown a whole lot of uh, aircraft. He, he said I've flown a lot of regional aircraft i've only ever flown the brazilian i've only flown the crj neither one of those were uh, truly capable of cat uh category anything more than category one and in the late days uh, the category two was finally approved for the crj so the only category three aircraft i've ever flown is the uh is the mad dog so yay yay it's a great aircraft Um, Steph, how about you? I actually agree with Dana. The um, Piper aircraft tend to be very stable for adverse, especially adverse wind conditions. Um, as opposed to the Warrior Cherokee family, I would actually pick the Arrow over um, the Warrior or the Cherokee. I just found it to be even a little bit more stable. It's a little bit heavier. Um, I, I just really like how it lands in crosswinds and gusty gusty wind conditions. It's it's pretty stable all the way down to the ground. So, Excellent. Captain Nick. Uh, I think um, the handling wise, the nicest was the Hawk trainer. Uh, it was a delightful airplane of flying. The, the controls were beautifully harmonized and you really could make it uh, dance. It was very easy to fly uh, very close to the ground, but the simplest in a crosswind had to be the Phantom because uh uh, you didn't really kick it straight. You didn't flare. You just drove it at the runway and uh, killed about 10 elephants when you landed. That was uh, the technique. And uh, even in a really strong crosswind, the airplane uh, used to sit there stable as a rock and used to kick itself straight. Um, although the first really bad crosswind landing I did, uh, uh, which was outside the crosswind limits of the aircraft, uh, we just did a... Uh, an approach and uh, cable engagement instead of landing it. So, well, I mean, that is actually landing it, but uh, rather than risk uh, um, um, making a mess of it and running off the runway in a very bad crosswind or diverting, we just threw it into the cable, and that uh, that was an interesting one. So uh, yeah, that pulled us very straight very quickly. <laughs> you know, I, I see some consistency here with our answers, and the the word that I keep hearing is stable or stability. 
And that's exactly the criteria that I'm going to use for picking my favorite airplane in adverse conditions, and actually two of them. But number one would have to be the C-141B made by Lockheed, the Starlifter was super solid. I mean, that airplane, you know, you knew that you could fly in anything and you could land out of it. And, you know, it's a very beefy uh, airplane. And the other one I would pick uh, in the airline world would be also the airplane that I've flown made by Lockheed and the uh, L-1011 TriStar. And it's just, it was just stable, rock solid, stable airplane. And you just knew that you could land in any conditions. Yeah, I think you're right, Jeff. Confidence uh, is so much uh, makes life so much easier when you're trying to land in difficult conditions. You've got confidence in your airplane. I think you can probably make it do almost anything. Yep. Now, if you want to have a lot of fun, take a Cessna 150 out to the Outer Banks on a windy day when you got a nice crosswind blowing like 20 knots across the runway. That's that's a lot of fun. The opposite of stable. The opposite of stable, but opposite. Yes. <laughs> Still fun. That was a great. It was a great question. Uh, yeah. and thanks for your audio feedback. And uh, you live in a lovely place in uh, Asheville, North Carolina. I would agree with that as well. I know you would. All right. Um, let's see. Oh, just quickly. Uh, the We talked about this uh, drone slash helicopter, uh, Blackhawk helicopter crash. And uh, uh, this is from the Boston Herald. Uh, this is actually sent in by Anthony Vogt or Vought. Uh, here again with a link you might find interesting, and um, he says, of course, the drone operator broke multiple rules. And uh, just quickly, a recreational drone operator was at fault in the first confirmed mid-air collision in the U.S. Hello? Between a... Um, <laughs> what? Okay, I can do Sorry. that. Yeah. That was my email coming What's up. What's happening? Oh, no, it bell. broke... There you go. Yeah, it's like sticking or something. I must have <laughs> must have spilled some it's beer. Been on overused. It. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, anyway, um, the first confirmed mid-air collision in the U.S. between a drone and a manned aircraft, the National Transportation Safety Board said Thursday, the operator was unaware the Federal Aviation Administration had temporarily banned drone flights in New York when his small drone collided with an Army Black Hawk helicopter on September 21st. The UN General Assembly was meeting in New York at the time. Uh, let's see, the helicopter suffered minor damage while the DJI Phantom 4 drone was destroyed. Duh. Uh, the operator flew the drone two and a half miles away. Again, the drone operator flew the drone 2.5 miles away despite a long-standing FAA prohi- prohibition on drone flights beyond the sight of an operator, the report said. The helicopter pilot saw the drone, tried to move, maneuver away from it, but it was too late to avoid the collision. Uh, in his interview with investigators, the drone pilot said indicated that he was not concerned with flying beyond visual line of sight, and he expressed only a general cursory awareness of regulations and good operating practices, the report said. In other words, it's just a dude bought his drone at a local store and just started flying it. Had no idea, and we've talked about that several times on the show, like how do you get the message out to yeah. people that they're operating airplanes? Uh, well, that's, I mean, that's the problem. If they're available commercially and there's no, there's no checks in place to prevent people from buying them without any type of training. And there's plenty of responsible drone owners out there and people who have reviewed the FAA regulations and part 107 operators and all of that good stuff. But there's just as many people out there who 
can just go buy one off the shelf and not ever look at any of the information that comes with it, aside from how to like the quick start guide, how to get started with it and just go flying. So, yeah. And until we can figure out how to crack that nut, you know, how to literally um, get the person, you know, buying these things to actually be aware of the fact that they're flying in our airspace system and that uh, they are not the only things out there flying around and what a you know hazard they can be to uh, air, other airplanes up there. You know, it's going to unfortunately be like this. All right. Uh, Dana, you want to take this one by uh, first officer, Dave? Hi, Kevin, Jeff and APG, APG crew. I am a longtime listener. I think I started back at episode 50. Well, thank you. For being with us, F.O. Dave, so long. I really enjoy the show, and it had been a great source of information and entertainment. But he said had been. Hmm. Uh, entertainment <laughs> for me over the years. I think he Thank meant past. past. I think it was past, a typo. I hope that's what he means. No, no, it's all past tense. He's done with us. He's sending in this Thank feedback, you. and no more. Thanks for saying Exactly. It's nice it's to know you, now. Yeah. Oh, boy. So, <laughs> Thank you for all the hard work and and time that you uh, have guys have put in. I'm a first officer of a large regional airline in the UK. In episode 303, there was a question regarding why number two engine is started first on the Dash 8 Q400 turboprop. I have around 1,000 hours on her and thought that I would uh, write in with the answer. The reason is brake pressure. The number one engine hydraulic system powers the normal brake system, and the number two hydraulic system powers the emergency parking brake system. If there is 1,000 PSI of residual pressure indicating the, in, in the parking brake system, then it doesn't matter which engine is started first. However, if the pressure is less than 1,000 PSI, then the number two engine is started first to ensure the system is fully pressurized. In addition, if the parking brake system pressure is less than 500 PSI, it is necessary to start the number two engine prior to pushback to ensure the sufficient pressure exists in the parking brake system to enable the crew to stop the aircraft in the event of a broken tow bar during pushback. If parked overnight, it is normal for the parking brake system to lose some pressure and is really above 1,000 PSI. So starting number two engine first has become the norm. Thanks again and take care, First Officer Dave. Well, Dave, thank you very much for that information. I still have a question about which engine you shut down on taxi in, though. Does that answer? It didn't really answer that. Well, maybe it does answer the question if it's still for. Hmm, I guess it sure. depends on the uh, how good the accumulator system is, I guess, yeah. on on that airplane. First Officer Dave, if you haven't left us entirely with your past tense uh, appreciation yeah, of our show, yeah. if you're still there, um, can you maybe um, Don't send leave just, us, just, Dave. just a Don't small piece of please. feedback to talk about which engine would be shut down for single engine taxi operations after you've landed and are taxiing back to the gate as well? I'd be curious to know if it makes a difference. And I really think when Dr. Steph says it, it sounds a whole lot better. And hopefully he will stay with us. Yeah. <laughs> just just a small plea, First Officer Dave. Thank you very much for your feedback. We do appreciate it. Yeah. Speaking of staying with us, I have to run. All right. Get out of here. You need to get some sleep because you have probably an early get up in the morning. Zero four hundred. But I actually have uh, friends come and pick me up for a quick uh, a quick bite. Oh, okay. Excellent. I promise that I go. Wait, eat. you just ate before we started the show. No, for them, not for me. I'm done ah, eating. Ah, okay. But I'm, I just want to go see them for about an hour, an hour and a half. Awesome. Before I All have right. to really go ahead. Right. Okay. Well, thanks right. for joining Alrighty. us, Dana. Uh, we appreciate it. 
taking the time out on your layover. We uh, we're, we always appreciate it when we can have you on. With always us. my pleasure. And uh, let me know what uh, looks good next week. I okay. I'm flying and no, I'm not. Am I flying next week? Nothing's going on next week. It's, uh, I don't know. Is there a holiday or something? I think it's Christmas. Oh, that's right. Well, and there's another oh, very Christmas. important holiday. It's called Festivus for the rest of us. Festivus that's right. Festivus. Uh, the Feast of St. Peter, the first martyr and Boxing um, I think it's Boxing Day. someone's birthday. Oh yeah. on that thing too. Yeah. Just saying. Merry Christmas. We'll see you. Good night, you. Dana. See you, Dana. Safe Have a good tomorrow. time, mate. All right, uh, let's have a little bit more um, audio feedback, this time uh, from Brad. Hi, everybody. Uh, Brad from North Dakota calling. Um, I just wanted to uh, leave a suggestion for uh, Captain Nick about plane tales in the future. I was talking to an elderly gentleman uh, where I live, and he was telling me about some experiences he had while being a crewman on B-29s after World War II. Yeah, it sounds like they did a lot of reconnaissance missions um, flying against what would have been the former USSR and Warsaw Pact, where some of their planes were actually um, shot at by the Russians. It sounded very interesting, and I think there's got to be a plain tales story in there somewhere. Um, it's just a suggestion for Captain Nick. And I also just want to be the first one, and maybe I'm not the first one, to wonder if the airline pilot uh, guy show is going to be retitled the Airbus Pilot Guy Show with the recent announcement that uh, Acme is going to be buying a very large number of Airbus aircraft. Anyway, thank you guys for all the hard work on the podcast, and we'll look forward to uh, seeing the next one. Thank you. Bye-bye. I think this airline pilot guy (laughs) is going to be flying, probably not going to be flying any Airbuses before this airline pilot guy retires. But I never say never. Never yeah, say that's right. never because I was never going to fly the mad dog. And that was more than 15 and a half years ago uh, that I converted to it and uh, I have more Look than you probably today. getting close to 11,000 hours on it. <laughs> Yikes. That's why I'm drinking the gin, Glenn. 11,000 hours. Wow. Yeah, not quite. But I know I have more than 10, like at least 10 and a half, 10, seven, something like that on this thing. Mm. So, Yep. Long, long time. So as I said, don't you never say never. Um, so, and uh, that sounds like an interesting idea for a plain tales. So what do you think? Yeah, most certainly. And thank you for the suggestion. I'll take a look. All right. And uh, let's see, I was not really drinking that gin. The top was on it, but I probably will end up drinking some after the show. Mm. Okay. You're on vacation after all. I am. Of course that doesn't make any difference. (laughs) Okay, uh, let's see. Oh, here. This is a good one. Albert. Um, We're so sorry. Um, Dear APG crew, I don't believe I've heard this being discussed before. I apologize if it has. I feel a very strong desire to start listening to all episodes from episode one. I may be getting APG syndrome. APG Syndrome. I think that's the first time we played that on this episode. My question is, some airlines dim or even turn off completely the cabin lights during nighttime takeoffs and especially landings. What is the reason for this?
We dim our cabin lights at night. I just wanted to play that. Because that's the first thing that popped in my head when you, you my talked about. On and it's you have outside. got a strange head. <laughs> I do. <laughs> no doubt. Oh, very nice touch. Cap- or Dr. Steph is wearing her sunglasses and it's night. She's it wearing her sunglasses wearing at my night. Sunglasses. Thank you. Corey Hart, right? Yeah. Yep. You got it. You got it. No, my 80s so, music. So when I was when I was reading this, that's exactly what was popping into my head. I'm thinking, oh, I gotta, I gotta play that. I gotta get a little snip of that. Google's gonna love me. Mm-hmm. Okay, you uh, bet. What is the reason for this? If so, uh, is is it so that passengers' vision has adjusted to the dark environment and should be there be an emergency evacuation? Passengers don't waste valuable seconds getting used to the darkness outside. If this is so, why don't all airlines follow this procedure? I've landed on domestic flights to into Sydney, Australia at night with the cabin lights fully turned on. Is it to do with the different airports having different levels of external lighting? Is it a policy that varies by airline? What is the policy on Acme and Acme Red? On a related topic, on long-haul red-eye flights, it seems some flights leave the cabin lights fully on, some dim them or have every fourth or fifth light on, others turn them off completely, leaving only the galley lights on. What is the policy on Acme and Acme Red, and what are the reasons? Looking forward to hearing the opinions of the experts on the APG crew. Uh, He's just going to have to deal with us, I guess. Um, including from Dr. Steph, about the effects of going into a dark environment from a brightly lit cabin in an emergency. And that, again, is from Albert, Passenger Albert. He says clear skies and it says tie winds, but I think he means tailwinds. Um, Oh, I'd like a nice tie wind. Wouldn't that be nice? Or some pad tie or something. Mm, I'm hungry. Um, So I think that uh the reason well first of all airlines do it it depends on the regulator of the country that the airline is operating from and uh it also depends maybe on the individual airline for instance like the the whole issue about the window shades i think that the window shades should be up on all takeoffs and landings but it's not a regulation here in the u.s uh, and I'm not even sure that the cabin lighting is a regulation thing here in the U.S., but I know that at Acme, we do dim the cabin lighting for takeoffs and landings. And that's all I can say. And I think it's because of what you suspect. It's the uh, being able to adjust your your vision for the lighting conditions. But that's all I'll say about that. So just real quick about um, the basic function of your eye. So your eye has two different types of cells that are responsible for um, different types of vision. You have rods and cones. Cones are um, very sensitive to to color, but the rods are the ones that are uh, more sensitive to uh, dark um, environments and light. Um, believe it or not, a, a rod cell in your eye is sensitive enough to respond to a single photon of light, which is not a whole lot of light at all. So it makes it about a hundred more times sensitive to light than your, um, than the cones in your eye. But the problem with rod cells is that they respond slower to light. Um, takes about a hundred milliseconds. Um, um, or the, the stimulation they receive is a hundred milliseconds more per, uh, photon of light than, than the cones. I think I'm getting that right. Um, so it really takes a longer time for your eyes to become adjusted to, dark environments. So, uh, the more time you can give your eyes to, to acclimate and adjust to the nighttime environment, the more sensitive those 
rods are going to become and the better your nighttime vision is going to be. I take it back on the 100 milliseconds. I'm not really sure where I got that. That's not very much time at all. But um, the, the main point being the rods just need a lot longer to actually respond to light, even though they're much more sensitive to light. So that's why you need more time to become adjusted to it. Captain Nick uh, at Acme Red, what is your policy regarding lighting? Yeah, the UK um, have a regulation that requires cabin lights to be dim for landing. So that's what we do. And also to have the uh, window shades open. Uh, and that's exactly what it's, as uh, Captain Jeff has uh, suggested. It's to allow your eyes to accumulate. So if you do end up uh, evacuating, you've got a chance of finding your way around uh, a quite a dark, part of the airfield um, and also of course uh, when an aircraft is in an emergency and you only have emergency lighting that's not particularly bright uh, compared with a brightly lit fully illuminated cabin that uh, they might have during a meal service for example so uh, you need to be able to uh, have reasonable visual acuity to find your way uh, nicely using those uh, uh, line of exit lights and then find the exit and get out um, and of course, uh, the window shades up gives everyone, but particularly the cabin crew, a good chance to see outside the aircraft so that before they uh, open a door, they can get a, a, a visual gauge of how severe any problems might be outside their door. They usually could because the door window is tiny. Uh, and they can, while they're standing up and working out what to do, they can look out through the cabin windows much bigger and see if there's a fire outside, in which case they won't open that door, obviously, and let people slide straight into a fuel fire. That would not be ideal. Just makes sense. It's all for safety, and I wish that um, the regulators here in the U.S. had that same rule regarding the shades. Yeah, but, I mean, your, your company does the right thing, I think, which is just basically encourage people to do the right thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, when it comes to the cabin lights, uh, well, they do vary so much on different aircraft types. Uh, and uh, nowadays you'll find, uh, I think on uh, the Airbus, we've got at least 12 uh, cabin light settings, mood settings, depending on what phase of flight. Uh, it's not common that they go completely black, uh, although I noticed down the back end of the 330 that I passengered home in a few days ago, that's exactly what they did. They they had the lights completely blank, but that always makes it a bit difficult if people are trying to get out and move to get to the toilets and things. So, so there's usually just a little bit of uh, dim lighting, uh, but uh, a lot of that depends on the aircraft type. And uh, also the cabin crew have decided to set them up. So, you know, they're given guidance, but I don't suppose that's hard and fast. All right. Thank you, uh, Steph, for giving us some of the medical, physiological you know, reasons yeah, that's for basic that. stuff, but I'm sorry, I'm not an ophthalmologist, but trying to, well, we're not sorry. Pull some not of that uh, <laughs> information from the back of my brain there, but yeah. Very cool. Um, here, let me, uh, I'm going to do the um, echo switch for a second here. So bear with me and play something. So long, farewell, I'll be just saying goodnight. I hate to go and leave this pretty sight. So long, farewell, I'll be just saying adieu. Adieu, adieu, to you and you and you. Okay, so the reason why I'm playing that is this is sent in from Liz, and it's a follow-up. 
on something that we had talked about on an earlier show, and that is regarding the maneuver, the goodbye. Get it? So long, farewell, Alfeder saying. Very good. Air Berlin yes. uh, maneuver. Yeah, uh, Air Berlin uh, pilots who performed an unusual maneuver on the airline's last long haul flight to Dusseldorf in October did not break any rules and will not be fined, the German Air Traffic Regulatory Agency said on Tuesday. The pilots of uh, Flight 7001 from Miami with 223 passengers on board made a low pass over the airport after a boarding and landing on October 16th, and videos of the move went viral on social media. One of the pilots told a TV broadcaster he wanted to make a farewell statement. And uh, after examining radar data and voice recordings, the BAF Federal Regulatory Agency for Air Traffic Control determined that the pilots had asked for permission from the airport tower to carry out the left turn in plenty of time. The BAF came to the conclusion that the relevant permissions have been given, and from the point of view of the air traffic controllers, all the relevant safety conditions were met. And then they finally said, come on, take a chill pill. Let's have some fun, okay? Direct quote. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe. Uh, that was in, uh, in German, presumably. Yes, I, I, I couldn't read the German, but uh, so it, that's the effect. Of, loose you know, loose t- translation. I would translation. love to know what chill pill is in German. <laughs> well, we have some German if, listeners. If Fabian, us, if Fabian was know. with us, he'd tell us, or Marcus. <laughs> I'm sure there's... <laughs> Finally, we have a regulatory agency that goes, oh, come on. You know, there was nothing dangerous about that maneuver. And they were just, I mean, come on. That was their last time to, to do that. And uh, good on them. It's good to hear. Okay. That, I believe, is everything that I had in the uh, feedback folder, unless I missed something. Oop, that was it. Okay. Wow. Well, Great show. Done it all, man. Um, Good job. A lot of a uh, lot of news and such, but um, it was uh, it was a, a lot of fun doing it. And uh, and thank you for putting up with us this week. And uh, a reminder again that if you want to, and I'm sure many of you who listen to this show also listen to the other great shows out there, the other aviation podcasts, many of whom will be involved with the. Uh, the PTUK extravaganza uh, Christmas show in just two days. And uh, so we look forward to seeing you uh, then. And let's see, if you want to learn more about this particular show, you can head over to airlinepilotguy.com and there you'll find information about the crew and the community, which is the most important part of this. Uh, The coffee fund, if you want to support us financially, merchandise, and some other stuff over there if you're interested. Um, again, that's airlinepilotguy.com. And we also have some uh, smartphone apps for uh, iOS and Android. And you can find out information about how to download those by heading over to the, uh, the website or your respective app store on iOS. It's the, uh, the uh, iOS app store. And then on the Android um, universe, it's the uh, Google Play store. And we're on social media, too, believe it or not. Stuff. Believe it or not, we are there. You can find us on Twitter using the handle at APG Crew. We all have access to that and can respond to you there. Or you can look up our individual Twitter accounts into the top of that page. You can also go over to Facebook.com slash Airline Pilot Guy and interact with community members there. Um, all kinds of interesting articles related to aviation are posted. Information about meetups and general uh, community related topics. So 
hope to see you there. But what about, is that all of the social media stuff? It is not. It is not. In fact, there's more. But wait, there's more. Step. I mean, not step. (laughs) (laughs) Hillel, come on over here. I'll move out of the way so you can talk. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack. Sorry I called you uh, Steph Hillel, but, you know, honestly, that's a compliment. Wow. Yeah. Oh, Dana, I thought he'd already left. <laughs> All right. Uh, with that was that, just an echo. <laughs> with that, um, I guess it's uh, time for us to bid, uh, bid you adieu. And until next time, we're wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Auf saying good night. Cheers. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Good day.